0: We all know school sucks, but could that be intentional? Is school merely a filter, a caste system implemented to nurture a managerial class that polices and pities those below them? Free your mind and your soul will follow. The best learning that I've ever done was the learning on my own, in my own mind in the cocoon of my own soul. I hope this podcast can serve as a template, as a guide, as a encyclopedia for you to dive into and pick a story out, pick a clue, a hint, a lesson, uh, whatever it may be that you get out of this show. Today's guest is a very special guest, someone whose work is very important to me. His name is John Klyzek. He is a professor. He is an author of the book School World Order. And he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with John Klyzek.
1: I remember when I was getting trained to be an educator. They talked about change agents all the time. It was a positive thing. It was, n- I never had the sense that it had any of this other connotation So I, I came by and got this book. And the change agents, okay, are there to subvert the, the traditions of, the, of the, the, not just America at large, but the, the local communities, and to basically subvert them and supplant them with this Marxist, communist, collectivist, propaganda curriculum that would sort of drive us into this new world order right and we can we can sort of see how it's evolved and one of the things that was mentioned in there was for change agents how to identify their resistors meaning right like so if you're in there you're trying to sort of change everybody's values and there's going to be people in there who like whoa 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 like you gotta there's there's all these techniques in there like how you isolate the person how you make them look make make other people think that there's something not write about the person, right? And to, and to otherwise marginalize their opinion. And so she was like, well, wait a minute, like the resistor is like she thought about the woman talking about the head on the pike. And so she sort of associates the two and she's like, well, I'm a resistor.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, and with me is a very special guest, someone who I had been meaning to get in touch with uh, for a long time, and sure enough, the universe had it that uh, we got in touch through a good friend Bruce Torres, and we're going to be talking about something that is close to home. Listeners of this show may be familiar with a subject that I've been talking about quite a lot lately. But before we get to that, we're going to be talking with John Kleizek, author of School World Order, the Taoist professor. Uh, John, welcome to the show, man. Please, for my audience who might not be familiar with you yet, could you give us a little rundown, a brief 101 on who you are and what you do? Yes, sir.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, uh,
0: as, he, as you mentioned, I my 14 I guess. I'm
1: the author of uh, School World Order uh by profession I am an adjunct college professor. I teach at a few different uh community colleges and, and at a university as well. Um been doing that for over 10 years now. Um and you know uh married got uh got a puppy and another another dog now um and done some martial arts for old 20 Two years now? Let me see 36. I mean 38 from 16. So about 22 years. Uh getting back into that right now. Uh the old lockdown scenario kind of threw everything off. Uh and then the next thing I did was a couple years later. So I'm trying to try to get back in decent shape and uh maybe start doing some sparring, some raffling again. But that's uh that's sort of me in, in a nutshell. Uh, I, I guess I could specify that I teach rhetoric and, and research argumentation rhetoric, and, and now I'm teaching interdisciplinary studies as well. Um, and so that's uh, yeah, that, that's sort of a good profile.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, we share that interest in martial arts. Uh, I, too, have trained in kickboxing and Muay Thai and I think there's something about martial arts that prepares a mind for this type of of research of this you know the courage required to even you know fathom some of this stuff. So maybe speak to that how how did martial arts play into your life? Uh, did you start really young? Did you start in your adulthood? How how did you get interested in martial arts?
1: Oh, well, let's see. So, so I started when I was like 16. Um, I met a guy that was uh, a taekwondo guy. Um, and, uh, and you know, I uh, trained a little bit here and there with, with him, and I, then he ended up going to an actual dote. He was a guy in in, uh, in high school. Um, I was kind of a troublemaker, actually. Uh, I was kind of a punk, and so I think what what originally got me into uh. Training initially was the fact that uh, my mouth got me in in situations where I needed to uh, where I needed to defend myself, uh, and then I realized, you know, when I finally learned how to defend myself, that my mouth—I was running my mouth because I was insecure and I was scared. I was a really skinny kid, right? I was like hundred pounds soaking wet. I mean, I and since then I've been I've been lifting weight since I was like fourteen uh and you know i went from like literally it was not much more than 100 pounds to about a buck 65 in in college i'm probably about 155 ish now i'm give or take um but you know once i uh I, I think what it was was um i felt like if i had a big enough mouth then uh, nobody would bully me and we would think I'm this little skinny kid right and then uh it, it does kind of you know it, it will intimidate some people but other people will call your bluff right and then uh so that was sort of what got me into like training mm. um you know and and then after that you know it just became sort of uh you know sort of a mind body you know sort of a, a life art type thing mm. um well you know, and
0: it, it's it's important i think to know that self-reflective aspect because you quickly realize when you know how to fight that you don't need to fight, right? And that that also reveals like that, that um, you know, loud mouthishness, which I also shared as a young man a, and a teenager, especially, that is like a sort of side effect of whatever's riled up inside of you that for me, at least speaking for myself, martial arts kind of tame that fiery energy. And I didn't feel the need to like, you know, assert myself in a conversation as much or in a social setting, uh, pick on people and whatnot. Yeah, I definitely. I think if martial arts was required for students, we might be in a, a more sane world. I don't know. Uh, I don't want to make any, you know, <laughs> sweeping statements, but I do think it, it contributed greatly to, to my life. I'm sure you can say the same.
1: Yeah, there's uh, a yeah, there's this line from Fight Club, uh, where he where he basically says something like, after you've been in a fight, uh, the volume on the rest of your life gets turned down, right? And it's it's sort of kind of what you're getting at, right? I mean, it's like after you've you know been getting beat on, uh, you know for you know an hour several times a week, right? And you sort of at a certain point you lose your ego, right? So so I my background was Taekwondo, uh, and then later went into like uh, some Muay Thai. Um, you know, and I've, I've, I've dabbled in a little bit of everything, but like I've got a black belt in taekwondo and I'm a certified instructor in the TBA, the uh, International Taekwondo Association. Um, but like one of the first things, you know, this is oh, probably 2004 ish, five ish, six ish, something like that. And I started getting into MMA and there was like the NCAA guys at college, uh, you know, and they put you on the ground really fast. So like everything you're good at is is instantly taken from you right all oh, your hands your feet you're on your back you're staring at the ceiling and you know uh getting tapped you know multiple times around after at a certain point right I mean the, the egos right I mean it just goes away I mean because you're focused on right I mean trying to recognize okay I'm in this position again like how do I get out of it uh so you know when you when you're in those scenarios uh it makes whatever you think are the stakes in, in social interactions, right. Uh, Sort you, so you tone down, Uh, but definitely, you know, just when it came to like, you know, just academia and research in in general, uh, it, it helps you to keep, you know, pull out, pull those long hours, keep, keep writing, keep studying, even today. Right. I love researching. I love writing. Obviously I've got, you know, several other classes I have to teach. So I've got a lot to juggle, but, even the things that you enjoy uh in life, if if you want to excel at them and achieve at a relatively you know sufficient level, uh you have to push yourself beyond the precipice of comfort, right? Like whether it's just to get in the extra hours or whether it's to be able to process new information in a way that you're not used to. And you know, that psychic state is very similar to to like that being in a in a fight, in the sense that right, you have to go you have to move into this thing right that that you're that is not a comfortable situation right and you have to and you have to keep going even when you're tired even when you feel like right you don't really you know you're sort of lost in the in the flurry um and so you know that, that always I always felt like uh that made me more studious than I otherwise would have been because that was another issue with me in uh in high school and grade school and such as uh wasn't a very good student that <laughs> has this kind of a wild animal. So, you know, all other things definitely teaches you, uh, you know, some self-discipline. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it is ironic given your uh, profession that you were sort of a wild student. Do you think your teachers would have anticipated this career choice? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no. My, my, uh, well, I can't, I mean, it's, 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 it's strange. Like there's probably some that wouldn't at
1: all. And there's probably some that would be, I right. I knew we could do it, like, because there was always, there was always, um, I mean, I was always in the principal's office, right? I was always uh, getting suspended, um, and so there were some people that and some some instructors who were just like, this, "This kid's he's he's you know beyond the pale," right? Like uh, and couldn't, couldn't get me to do the work. So the, the fact that I, <laughs> that I went to college would have been surprising enough. The fact that I teach college would have been more surprising. Uh, writing a book, uh, I guess the topic of it might, might be fitting for how they perceived me, but, uh, just, you know, to, to put out that much, uh, intellectual labor, it might've been surprising. but there was always, it was all these teachers that were like, you know, they said I was bright or whatever. And it was just like, you know, we we know that you can do this. Uh, you just kind of got to like actually focus and and, and put in the, uh, the word. I had a chemistry teacher and um, we had we had a and had her for a couple different classes over the course of high school. And my earlier years, when I was really bad before I was, in the, you know, got, got some discipline with the martial arts. Uh, man, she probably sent me to the Dean more than, more than a lot of teachers. But I remember it was like that last, it's like the junior, senior year. She kind of like, when I, I toned it down, I learned to like, you know, uh, do enough to like, all right, it's time to work. You know, I can goof off a little bit here and there, but you know, I'll be respectful enough to like do this work. And she was just like, you know, most, most of these teachers don't know that you just, you're playing a big game all the time, you know? so. You know, some, some of them
0: would probably be surprised, some of them probably wouldn't. Um, same goes for my peers as well. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I see a lot of myself in how you describe yourself. I think part of my conspiratorial nature really was my experience with school and having that brightness to me that some teachers recognized. But having that edge that was like, I don't want to be a part of this. This is not my style of learning. Not that I was, you know, intelligently phrasing that in my head at that time. It was more instinctual than that. I kind of see this in hindsight. But it did feel like I was up against something that didn't care about me as an individual. It was more about uh, getting the the herd through the... (laughs) Whatever obstacles they had deemed most important, whereas I felt like I'm pretty smart, you know. Why do I need to listen to this and and follow these rules, right? I mean, I'm sure you felt that sort of rebelliousness as well.
1: Yeah, I actually, there was like a point in high school where I uh, i i i started i studied the I Ching uh, quite thoroughly, and uh, I was like 16. This was <laughs> you couldn't get me to read anything any assigned texts. But like I was like I was reading Edgar Casey, Eiching. I read the whole Old Testament, uh, Four Noble Truths. Like I was really into reading like religious uh, uh, literature, right? Um, try try to see like what they had in common, and maybe where all, where do these you know spiritual and philosophical ideas come from? Uh, and through the process of studying the I Ching that I um, sort of gave myself like a crash course in you know what what I later came to learn is called semi, semiotics and linguistics and also um, just sy- symbolism and, and metaphor in, in general. Well, it also gives you sort of a crash course in the bi- bi- binary logic right? as far as the b- base two notation. Um, but you know, I, I remember I, w- I had a visual version of it. Uh, it's over there, otherwise I would show you some of the art work on it. But basically instead of just the broken lines and solid lines, you know, here's, here's one of them, right? Uh, they, they came with artwork. So this one's heaven and water. And it would have like a picture, like it would, it would be like half, half the landscape would be something with water and half of heaven. And they'd sit there and go like, what does three solid lines have to do with heaven? Like, why, why is, you know, or, or what is a broken, solid, broken line have to do with water? Like, how does that, right? And then like, of oh, well, these are just symbols that you can use to represent things in the real world. And you could make, you could use any sort of, marking to signify what you're referring to. Uh and it was through that that I sort of came to came to the uh, an understanding of like metaphor, right? And like symbolism. So then I started writing poetry. Right. And um you know at a at a certain point there um you know um oh I lost my train of thought. I I gave you way too much backstory. Well it was the original question. It was something about the poetry that uh um they let me down that, that, that rabbit trail yeah, there.
0: Yeah, no, we were kind of talking about how a mind becomes sort of conspiratorial and how you sort of push up against this school that wasn't really prepared to teach to the individual it's more concerned with the the masses as a whole the herd and and you're saying how you were more interested in religious texts because they sort of gave you this crash course in symbolism and a different logic that you hadn't been exposed there, there it is right
1: and so then so right exactly so like i really started to like think about instead of just accepting you know what the institutions were telling me at face level right like i came to this new understanding of like you know, the malleability of perception, right? Mm. Um, And so, like, I I found this old, like, like, some of it was poetry stuff, but some of it was, like, sort of my own philosophical rantings, right? And I wrote some things in there about how I thought this school was designed to, like, you know, basically everything Charlotte said. I didn't know anything about, you know, this this huge book that she's got here, you know, volumes and volumes of years of you know federalization and corporatization and and, you know all of that um but it but it did sort of have that um it did sort of have this inclination that as an institution education was not was not edifying me and was not enriching the life of my mind right i felt like that i felt like the institution had an agenda and then a lot of the teachers were sort of just agents of the institution, whether whether knowingly, willingly, or you know what I mean? Some of them, I'm sure a lot of them that I probably butted heads with were just like doing their best and like trying to get through the curriculum and get me to behave. Right. But I just I saw them as sort of representative of this thing that I couldn't uh that I couldn't articulate at the time. And so I was uh, I butted heads a lot and I actually had uh had a had a sociology teacher uh and this is he he, he he, he said i'm a conflict theorist he kept saying which is a marxist theorist all right? i mean so it's 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 in sociology conflict theory basically takes marxist theory and applies it to the sociological dynamics because everything that we would look at i would point you know my response was well that's just cuz these people have the power and they want to they want to run this right and that was like sort of my boilerplate um and so you know that that i, I did sort of go through a, a I guess it happens to most people if you go through enough years of college and that is you know went through my my socialist or my Marxist phase um and that was about the time that Obama came in and you know a lot of the a lot of the people that uh sort of uh, made me you know sort of uh brought me to an affinity with Marxist and socialist ideas uh they were they were like they were all about Obama, right, and like I was like, isn't this guy doing basically the same stuff that Bush did? Like, I don't, I don't understand why we like this, right? Right. Like, and so that was that was the beginning of when I started really looking at like I guess what you would call conspiracy theory,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Or at
1: least reconsidering how I understood uh, politics and economics, and that required that I look at you start looking into some more like. I knew I wasn't like Republican, I knew I wasn't Democrat, I knew I wasn't establishment, right? And now I'm seeing like these Marxist socialist types are basically more or less in, in line with the same uh, with the same agenda. So, you know, libertarianism kind of comes up as uh, a, you know, a third party or this alternative, you know, take on politics and economics. And, and along with that also came friends that shared like, you know, uh, back in the day, you know, the, the info war stuff and the, um, uh, freedom to fascism, uh, the Aaron Russo documentary and some yeah. other stuff. And you know, I, I'm an academic, you know, I, I think, oh, come on. This is, this, a lot of this stuff is crazy, man. Like, you know, like I, if this is true, well, I'll be able to find this in the university library. Right. And, um, so that's what sort of, uh, I, one of the first things that uh, rapid trails, I guess I went on was. Uh, looking at the history of eugenics, uh, because I thought it was odd that I've never, it's kind of it's a little embarrassing to mention, but I I never heard, I didn't know what eugenics was until my senior year of college, right? And, you know, I took a couple of years off in between uh, high school and college, so, you know, I'm mid-20s, uh, and it's like, you know, the, the whole woke agenda that we see now that was always part of the academia, at least as long as I was there, right? Like, especially in the humanities and the arts, like everything that you studied had to be filtered through the lens of either race, sex, gender, or class, right? And so if you interpreted a text, how are you interpreting it? Are you interpreting it as Marxist? Are you interpreting it from a decolonial perspective? Are you interpreting it from a queer perspective? Are you de- deconstructing it from uh, maybe a Freudian perspective? Um and I just thought it was odd that like, we never talked about eugenics. Like, it was a lot of anti-racism, you know, uh, sort of. The, and yeah, I read a lot of critical theory, but you you never heard anybody talk about eugenics. So it was like, why did I how did I miss this? Right. And that was one of the things that a lot of the, you know, uh, conspiratorial types. Uh, I think one of the first documentaries that I had seen from from Alex Jones, that I actually liked at the time. Uh, was uh, the end game, right? And that was where he went into this whole I'm like, i never heard any of this. And well, lo and behold, if you go down to the university library, not only do they have plenty of history books on eugenics, uh, but they have like the old primary source stuff from the American Eugenics Society or from the British Eugenics Society, right? And like, you know, this is really, uh, or, the, or the Human Betterment Foundation, right? And it's like records of how many people they sterilized in California and I'm like, wow, like you know, this is really strange. Like, why didn't, why isn't this talked about? And that sort of sent me down another journey where it was like, well, uh, it must be that they want to rebrand or repackage this. Uh, and and you know, and my research has shown that that, that is the case. But but uh, but yeah. So that's you know, I guess I've always kind of had a, a different a, a interesting relationship with academia, right? Like mm. well, uh, touch and go here and there, yeah. You know even
0: today. Yeah. And I, I really relate to how you described that shift during the Obama election period. And I remember growing up, a lot of my perspective, especially on conspiracy theory and politics, I probably, you know, use the two terms synonymously at this point. But back then, a lot of that was informed by underground rap music, which you know, a lot of those guys, they grew up in the 80s and 90s consuming all sorts of different strains of conspiracy from, you know, the the people who were sort of more on the right side of the equation, trying to, you know, go against the federal government. And then we have the people who are more like holdovers, the left from like the 70s and the 60s, this sort of like fringe and obviously all that became sort of like appealing in a certain way, if you were like a pothead or somebody who was interested in that perspective, right, that it seemed like those all went hand in glove. So at the time when Obama became president, I was probably, uh, I was still in, in high school. And I remember thinking, you know, I hadn't smoked weed yet, but I remember, you know, having enough conspiracy know-how to have that same thought of like, well, now everybody's for this guy, you know, who all of a sudden became the number one drone strike president, you know, in all of history. And his whole campaign was, we're going to, you know, change things and oh we're not going to be you know like those war hawk republicans right you you got that at least at my age i got that associated in my head like oh republicans like war democrats like the people you know i remember having arguments with my grandfather and he would say like you're just a bleeding heart liberal you know and and to a certain extent i'm like well don't you have any sympathy for human beings like what are you what are you talking about so i totally relate to that conflict i'm curious though what what sort of switched it for you like when you're in college did you decide you were going to work in academia uh at that moment or was it afterwards like when did you make the decision that you were going to become a part of this thing that you were noticing had flaws and had you know problems and maybe wasn't uh moving towards the student's best interests
1: yeah uh you know, I actually so in undergrad, I really spent a lot of time uh martial arts training. Uh and I did a few amateur fights. I, I got offered a pro fight in the Iron Heart Crown, which was a used is an off uh an outshoot uh the old Japanese Shudo from back in the day. Um and at the time, um, you know, it was it was hard to uh it's hard to train and keep up with schoolwork and uh they wanted me to rematch a guy had fought in um total fight challenge in uh, in indiana he broke my nose it was a draw i went to a draw but he broke my nose i had a broken nose and i couldn't spark um and they were like well just get your cardio up and i was like man i think i'm gonna take this time off and i think you know when i'm done with i you know, got a couple of years left to college then i'll then I'll focus on this, which is probably one of the stupidest things I ever thought. Cause I'm thinking I'm going to have more time later in life. You, know, you never have more time later. I mean, I, like, so far, I mean, I'm like 38, maybe, maybe with when I retire, but it's like, you know, it, I, I thought, I thought that that was as busy as I would, as I would be. And then grad school became more busy and then teaching was even more busy. And so, um, so I spent a lot of time really, really training. I, I, uh, but and it's just otherwise, just kind of you know um, doing do, doing the work to get to get decent grades. Uh, you know, I was assuming cum laude, so the, you know I I graduated with with a nice GPA. Um, and they were basically like, um, well, actually, I was going to teach high school at first. I forgot I was going to teach high school originally, uh, and that was a lot of red tape. Um. You know, it wasn't quite as, uh, there's not, there's not quite as much academic freedom. So one of the things that they train you in is, um, if you're at a public institution, like you, when you make curriculums and lesson plans, you have to justify all of them with either national and or state standards, right? So like everything was very micromanaged. And then I had, when I did my, pri- my practicum, there was like three people over overhead, Right. I had one. So I had one teacher that um, taught the practicum course, Uh, another teacher that taught the ed psych, which is part of the practicum. And then there was a a teacher that like I had to observe and um, it wasn't student teaching, but, you know, you observe it and then you'll do a few lessons. And yeah, the one teacher didn't like me and the one loved me and the one in the middle didn't know who to believe. So it was like I was caught in the middle of that. And you know, it was like a lot of red tape. And then the people in the department were like, why don't you just we'll pay for you to do your grad program here. Why don't you just, you know, do a grad program if, if you're not liking the uh, the high school route, you know, and they were like, you know, are you, you know, you're you kind of a dense thinker, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe high school is not for you, right? So that was like, okay. And and I mean they basically told me that if I if I applied for grad school, they would give me an assistantship. So I did that. And at that time, I'm thinking I'm going to go uh, Ph.D. Uh, if, you're going to, you know, if you want to teach, like if you want a full time job in academia, which is part of the reason why I'm an adjunct still, uh, it's, you got to have a Ph.D. I'm not saying that nobody uh, that's kind of masters has got a tenure track job. I'm sure it happens, but most most institutions want their faculty to have uh, full time faculty to have Ph.D.s because for no other reason because the phds are more likely to be able to get grants and therefore they could pull in more money and then there obviously is also like the just the prestige the ethos and the clout of oh look we've got all phds here i mean personally at a a community college it's like you know we're not training people to be PhDs. a lot of people are getting associate's degrees right it's technical and career skills so i mean i don't know that i need to be Right. Uh, highly specialized in a particular discipline to be to be a, an effective full time community college teacher. Um, and so, you know, that, that was sort of um, that was that was sort of how I transitioned into it. And, you know, it was it was during grad school that the Obama thing happened. And uh, and I, I had such a good relationship with a lot of these instructors. Um And I I just thought they were, you know, like sincere and genuine people. I didn't think they were necessarily like ideologues, you know, for for some, you know, this, I didn't want to call it Marxist or progressive. I don't know what you call this new brand of left. I mean, There's like, you know, in favor of lockdowns and, and everything else. And, 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 and in favor of big tech running in schools, I'm not sure what you call that. But I would like, I started to, you know, share like libertarian suppositions in a, in a classroom debate. And I started to, you know, talk about some of the eugenics history and I would, you know, and uh, I noticed that like conversations became awkward, right? Like they became awkward in, in classroom scenarios. And then I started to notice that like people whom I would see in the hallway, like professors would walk past me and not even look at me. I had to like I know mean, there's two people in the hallway. <laughs> you, know, you know you see me. I you know what I mean. I know you see me. You know I see you see me. Uh, but you know you know what I'm saying. That was when it was like okay. So at that point, um, I was really focused on Brave New world, and I'd had an instructor. I, I, I she's one of my favorite instructors. I, I haven't talked to her in a long time. I keep in touch with some some of my professors, not her. Um, and. Um, It was a modern British lit class. And I wanted I I proposed to her, I want to do an independent study with you because like just a lot of the stuff on Braves and World, like a lot of the historical context that I'm seeing for where he derived these ideas, uh, I kind of want to do a a new historicist analysis of this book. And I was, you know, I I brought her, uh, Edwin Black's War Against the Weak. Uh, And one of the first things she did was she pulled it open and looks at it and goes, Cause I was trying to explain to her how we were funding, you know, uh, rock, uh, Rockefeller foundation was funding, you know, eugenics to the Nazi Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. Right. Uh, and so one of the first things she was, she looks at the publisher and she's like, Oh it's not like, you know, it's not like random house or Rutledge. It was, I think it was like four doors, four windows or something. Um, you know, so it was like immediately, like, kind of like I could tell, He's looking for a way to not acknowledge, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the well-documented, right? The guy has won awards for his journalism, not just on War Against the Week, but uh, in IBM and the Holocaust as well. Uh, and so she kind of seen where I was going. <laughs> her, her euphemistic response uh, was, I don't want to spend a whole semester talking about how HG Wells is trying to take over the world which is clearly not what I was saying, you know what I mean? Like like that type of uh, response. But, you know, so it was like at that point that I realized, like, well, I I can't actually do a PhD because the only way I could do a PhD would be to regurgitate stuff that I don't agree with or believe. Like I'd have to toe the line, which would mean I'd have to, you know, I'd have to run with some... Deconstructionist critical theory, postmodern thesis, right? And what I wanted to do was was really just, you know, I wanted to focus on science fiction and, and you know, do a historicist analysis of that and, you know, and tie in basically bring an academic approach to the to the wacky stuff I saw people like Alex Jones do, right? I mean, like, I, it was always entertaining uh, yeah, I mean, be, before, you know, he's, you know, gone fully off the rail, but, uh, it was always entertaining to listen to him sort of you know get all get all worked up and i wanted to bring like an academic approach to these lines of inquiry right like i wanted to have like primary sources right i wanted to be very measured with what i'm saying right and i'm not saying that you know there's not a time to to be colorful or or, or you know expressive about it but i wanted to make it like an academic thing and i knew that uh there was no way to do that so i at that point i was like well i guess i'm done with uh I <laughs> guess I'm doing get the PhD route. And um, I just sort of went into adjuncting, right? And the good thing about being an English major is that uh, every college on the planet, you got to take general education. And in order to take general education, you're always required to take composition, right? College level writing. So, and, and, uh so, every college has a, that's probably their broadest pool of adjunct instructors in this composition. In other words, it's not too hard to find a, a job doing it. Now, uh, you know, that doesn't really, uh, it's not really a, a career in the sense that, like, um, if you were tenure track, I would be teaching half the classes, right? And be making probably three times, at least, or at least double what I, I make teaching six classes. So they, and and then then with the Obamacare thing, you know, they they changed the whole healthcare rules, so that they started to cap us as, in terms of how many classes you could teach before they would have to offer you the uh, the healthcare program. So then what happened is I had to start bouncing between from college to college, whoever's got a class, and I got to add it up. So uh, again, and you know, this is this is my um. My strange relationship with academia, right? Like, I I uh, I like the methodology and the rigor of right appropriate academic research. Uh, I don't like the way I don't I don't like to do research in an institutional setting because of how they how they steer it. I like to take that, apply it to the stuff that's I've been called, I've been told is anti intellectual. Um, and so, you know, in the meantime, I I teach I teach at, at the college level, but. Um, you know, as an adjunct, they don't pay a whole lot of attention to you. As long as you, as long as your students are happy, you're you're just sort of like kind of hanging on the, on the side there. Um, so that that's that's uh, that's what got me teaching, and, and here I am, uh, here I am now. I'm still employed, not jabbed, um, but still employed somehow. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that last part that you didn't have to. You know get pushed to that decision in order to keep your job because that that was the case i'm sure for some people but yeah it's it's really i really appreciate you sharing that insight because it really elaborates on why we have this you know consensus cognitive dissonance right because there's been an imposed authority for so many generations now that deems anything that goes against the system anti intellectual, as you said, right? I mean, th- this may be, uh, you know, one case, but I'm sure other people have experienced that same thing where they try to go into looking into uh, a topic or try to do research on something that's maybe groundbreaking, something that the system wants under wraps, and it, it gets labeled anti-intellectual. And it makes you wonder if this system was designed, in fact, to you know be a sort of, um, well, like a filter to make sure that certain types of minds don't get to positions of influence through academia because that would throw the whole Institution into jeopardy,
1: yeah. Well, that, that's actually um, John Taylor Gatto, uh, who died, um, right around when my book was going to be published. I was going to uh, reach out to him for a blur, but he hadn't died yet. Um, but he was he was, uh, you know, in the hospital and stuff. i um, was you know, basically hospice by that point. Um, and he actually did some work with, um, he was in communication with Anthony Sutton, uh, who wrote, uh, America's secret establishment introduction to the order of skull and bones, who, uh, whose research I, uh, use, uh, to, to build the case for much of, uh, much of my book. Um, and what, what Gatto, uh, what he reveals based on, uh, his, his dive into, um, always oh, in, it was, uh, Alexander Inglis is, I think it's six principles of, of uh, education. Um, and he goes through them one by one. Um, and I can't remember the precise terms for all of them off the top of my head, but I know that there's three of the principles out, out of there. One is basically to make the students conform, right? It's conformity, right? It's, it, it, to make uniformity in terms of... Uh, the student body okay and then another one is to establish fixed habits of reaction okay so you want to have fixed habits that all sort of conform to whatever the institutional agenda is and then there's a third part in there uh that he, this one is called the propiedutic function um basically what it means is to train what you might call like a managerial class right so these are this, these are probably the students that uh, they do really well academically, uh, are troublemakers in any way. Don't ask a whole lot of questions, right? Like they follow directions, uh, really good. Uh, but they might not, they may or may not, but I, you know, they might not be the most creative uh, or independent, uh, thinkers. Right. Um, and so, uh, and those, those, that class of students, is going to be sort of trained to manage the other class right that is basically just being conditioned uh to conform to afford authoritative uh, instructions with with uh you know fixed fixed reflexes uh so i mean that's i mean this is uh alexander inglis um the there's a harvard lecture after this guy right so he was one of the early pedagogues early 1900s um i mean this is these are his principles, right? He's saying that this is the purpose of schooling in the United States, right? And so, um, I mean, I, I think you and I could anecdotally kind of infer that much from our own experiences, but like this is coming from somebody who basically sets uh policy in terms of pedagogy, right? Which is ped- pedagogy is just a fancy word for basically the philosophy or theory of teaching, how, how to teach, basically. Yeah. It,
0: it... And it's interesting the psychological sort of trap inlaid there because not that someone who rises to that role can't be creative, but as you said, there's a tendency for people who excel at that role to be less creative than the folks who aren't so equipped to become managers. And it feels like uh, those folks maybe have a psychological bias towards others with that independent spirit or creative spirit. Because, you know, (laughs) there's that grass is always greener on the other side mentality, you know, and people are always going to be fond of what they don't have. And I think there's a sort of psychological deception that whether intentionally or not is there, you know, and people fill that archetype, they tend to be those uh you know fitting that that role of course there's people who stand out and break the mold but the molds the mold for a reason right
1: yeah i mean i think i think oftentimes with that type of uh i guess personality type or that type of psychological profile um and and, and i've sort of inferred this uh you know thinking about like the whole covid phenomenon the lockdown phenomenon like how many people which is, I want to say all of them, but uh, hard to, and I won't name anybody, but it's hard to to name even a handful of, of uh, my colleagues who forget about, forget about like saying like, Hey, whoa, what's up with the, I, I'm not sure about this lockdown stuff. Or I'm not sure about this mandate stuff. Like didn't even ask questions. Didn't even ask questions. Right. And um, so when I think about like, well, why, what makes you, you're at, I, I'm in Academia right like everybody around me when I'm when I'm at a board meeting has either got a master's degree or a PhD so you know in terms of credentials we're supposedly right they're the, supposed to be some of the smartest people in in this locality okay but these people are the the let's not even use you know uh, metrics for intelligence I and mean, they're like you got to so ask a question first before you can even start, you know, uh, exercising any form of intellect. And I'm like, what is it that makes it makes uh, these 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 my colleagues, uh, you know, not ask any question? I think a lot of it has to do with you, they have, and this is this is that type of person. The, those you know, the the propydutic class of uh, manage the managerial propydutic class that Inglis uh, is talking about. Uh, oftentimes they identify who they are with their success and their success is attached to the institution and 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 the you know, whatever the institution purports to uh, authoritatively stand for right and so if if the institution says to do something right if you question the institution then right you're you're ultimately questioning your identity because then right like if 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 me having uh, some form of self-esteem based on how successful I am as an academic, meaning right based on my title at this particular academic institution, well, if that institution fails to have that authority because it's pushing policies that don't make any sense, then right does my success in that institution say anything about, me being authoritative in terms of my discipline uh you know logically it wouldn't right so then you would have to, you would sort of have this crisis of conscience and i think that and not just in academia i think you know a lot of, in the healthcare industry I and mean, with, the, with the people that uh maybe either diagnose prescribe or administer jebs or even the people maybe on like the fda the people that are on the regulatory boards like what gets these people to sort of conform or to go along with it i you know I, I think it does have something to do with um conflating your own personal identity with with your institution or or uh your, your profession
0: right and that is something that i learned in fleshing out skull and bones i'm not exactly sure which of the many authors featured uh wrote this particular article i'm thinking of but uh, they said something to the degree of the Prussian military realized that their soldiers cared too much about themselves in battle and they had to figure out a new way to train them so that they wouldn't be so self-centered, you know, for lack of a more nuanced term, you know, they, they felt that their soldiers cared too much about their own lives uh, and they needed to, to, you know, beat that out of them somehow. And I think the Prussian military schooling system correct me if i'm wrong became a sort of template that the american school system was based off of right whether it was it from the get-go or later on it became uh, a integral part of a lot of the way we educate people across the globe
1: yeah 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 i mean so um so that This phenomenon you're referring to is basically posited by uh, Johann Gottlieb Fichte. And he was actually basically uh, the the predecessor to Hegel. He was basically, his philosophies influenced Hegel. It's actually Fichte who came up with uh, what is known as the Hegelian dialectic, this concept of thesis antithesis synthesis but in on uh, it's up here we you can see it can't read it but in his addresses to the german nation this is where Fichte is basically uh positing what you're saying about all uh, the, the the prussian soldiers not uh you know being willing to just run into the bayonets when they were fighting napoleon he felt like that was Larry lost right so so he says that you know our education system needs to basically condition condition uh these these uh populations to have effectively what um you know gattle points out in in english's six principles which is to have fixed habits of reaction to conform to authority and uh it's actually you know this is where you get the term kindergarten from right and this comes out comes out of the prussian uh prussian model and it's basically imported over to the united states uh the whole the whole idea of compulsory education uh which you know mid to early-ish uh 1800s Um, Basically starts with Horace Mann, uh, Antioch College, and he was put in place there by Alfonso Taft, uh, who was one of the founders of the Order of Skull and Bones. Uh, He co-founded it with William Huntington Russell. uh, And then they would, from there, um, the Order of Skull and Bones, and we we can get into that in more detail, but there's several other members of the order that import Hegelianist philosophy into the education system and then they combine it with uh plenty stimulus response psychology um and so you know even even in the concept of of hegelianism which again is basically sort of an outgrowth of you know fixed ideas about the the dialectic you know there's it's uh it's effectively a collectivist philosophy in the sense that right um if you think about my example of the uh, the individuals who identify with their institution or their organization, right? I mean, like, so their individual identity is wrapped up in the collective identity of their colleagues and the institution that sort of hold them together. And that's sort of a microcosm for what Hegel refers to as uh, what he said was uh, God marching on earth, and that is the state. Hegel believed that the state is God marching on earth. So for him, the whole idea of the dialectic, uh it's basically this concept that the world evolves through ideas history in particular evolves through ideas and it's through the dialectic uh of of competing ideas right one one idea being turning the thesis the other being turning antithesis that the clash between these competing or opposing ideas uh then evolves into a new synthesis and the synthesis of that, that dialectic is expressed in the authorities of the state, right? The the institutions, uh, the laws, the policies, the culture that is codified in the in the state. And so, you know, if we look at public education and basically just, you know, an arm of the broader state or the broader government, right, as a public institution, it's basically part of that broader dialectic or that broader collective.
0: Yeah, and it becomes so much more than just a battle for the mind when you look at the power that a lot of these universities wield. I mean, when we look at Skull and Bones in particular, one of the more insidious things that they did was they figured out some sort of uh, land grant scheme and they took a lot of public land from the state of Connecticut. Um, And then, of course, a lot of these men went on to go and work in other universities, places all across the country from, you know, Connecticut to California, coast to coast, and the University of California, Stanford, I mean, all of the uh, companies that are born out of universities, all of the wealth that are born out of the, the innovations that took place amongst these groups, I mean, our whole oil industry started with the Sheffield School, which was very closely related to Skull and Bones. And, you know, when people hear school world order, they might think, oh, okay, well, we're talking just about the classroom. But what you have to understand is the classroom became a vehicle to take over the entire country from within. And, you know, I'm not assigning blame to uh, any one person or group because, I, you know... I don't know for sure, but it does feel like the American Revolution never quite, you know, worked because we've always had this sort of influence from royalty, from Europe, through our school system, through the universities. I mean, Harvard. Was created by basically people from Oxford and Cambridge, and you know Yale was created by people from Harvard, and so it's on and on and on. You know they they are very incestuous, especially when you look at the Ivy League schools. I mean, uh, being in a, a community college that was right next to Yale University it was pretty obvious. The disparity between the school I was going to and the amazing you know resources that these students who shared the same city as me had access to. I didn't just because, you know, I was a community college. I was on the government dole to, to learn, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that plays into uh, the conditioning of the type of mindset to where, where you wrap up your own identity and your own value uh, with, with that of your institution. I mean, you know, so when you think about, you know, something like some, place like Yale or, or any Ivy League school for that matter. Right. I mean, like you said, just look at the architecture, right. Compared to like that of the community college, community college almost, you know, most, most that I've been to, um, and some of them try to look a little more university ish, but even those, right. I mean, for the most part look almost like department stores. Right, I mean, very, very <laughs> squat, square, right, metallic. Like, there's no coral yeah. wood, and right.
0: Uh, I've and, seen high schools that look better than community <laughs> colleges. You know, yeah, for sure, they look like uh, brutalist architecture, pri- pri- primarily, at least what I've seen. You know, I don't know how that changes the further west you go, but uh, yeah, the school I went to definitely uh, stands out in New Haven, and uh, not for any good reason. Uh, because New Haven has a lot of really, you know, ornate architecture. Um, but yeah, definitely the case where, you know, they, they just don't get the funding and they don't get the attention. Um, and that's, I mean, I think they're kind of anachronistic to the whole system itself in a way. It seems like it's, it's, uh, it took the place of trade schools to some degree.
1: Yeah, well, and then, you know, when, when, when you talk about, um, you know, replacing trade schools, um, you know, vo- trade schools, the old trade schools are very different from what is now termed uh, voc ed or technical ed or polytechnical. You know, it's basically what Charlotte uh, referred to as workforce training or what, what was often referred to in bills as a school to work. Now, nowadays, it turns cradle to career. All right, and one of the differences if you if you went you know, back in the old days of um, voc-ed or the old trade schools, rather, um, what you, uh, you basically were in an apprenticeship, right? I mean, so you're basically learning the skill and usually performing and practicing the skill as you were learning it. And when you were done, you were usually, right, uh, you were were moving straight into, you know, maybe a journeyman level or something like that. Um, And it was pretty much just, Learning, learning the craft, learning the art, learning the skill, learning the trade. Now, what you have is um, a, a litany of what I would say is more or less unnecessary um, credentialing and accreditation, right? And so, you know, if I've seen, I've seen billboards for, um, you know, getting getting licensed to do like aluminum siding. Okay, I used to do siding um, and, you know, it's, it's not the type of, uh, you need, it's not the type of skill that you really need all that certification for, right? I mean, like, if you just, if, if you work on a crew long enough, you, c- you can kind of learn it and you don't really need the accreditation, you just sort of need the reputation of your own work or, or the, the outfit of the company uh, that you came out of, but, but nowadays, um, you know, the credentialing is there because it's designed to funnel you into other public private partnerships, right? So once you get your accreditation, this accreditation is, is going to get you a job with some conglomerate outfit, right? And so basically when you get, when you, a lot of the voc or technical ed or polytechnic, uh, programs these days are, uh, built into what are called career pathways. so ba- And, and it's, it's, it's a term that's used in, you know, uh, pedagogical jargon. And basically what it does is it's going to follow you straight into, again, uh, a large conglomerate type company. And, and so instead of that company having to train you on the job uh, and basically, right, that's going to be on their dollar and on their time, right they're going to get that training subsidized in a public institution uh where they're going to give you this uh credential uh now they're moving into like blockchain badges um what they call it they, sometimes they call them competencies right this is the new thing competency-based education so your competencies are could be workforce competencies skills but they could also be social emotional competencies and right they're, they're, but they're basically um they, they want to start giving blockchain badges to sort of say, okay, you have these skills so you can move into this particular job. Uh, so so what what the career pathways do is basically subsidize uh, very large corporations um, and basically train their workforce for them so that they can then, right, uh, you know, perform on their, their government contracts and their, their other monopoly style contracts.
0: Mm. And it just feels... From my perspective as a college dropout, like there's a caste system that's being cast in stone, you know, like they're they're making it so that you are on a set track. And if you're an outlier, I mean, there are very few options for you. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to be too bleak or pessimistic. I'm sure there's plenty of opportunities but they give you the impression that there's only one road to success, and it's through their, through their outlet, right? Which is really not true. I mean, you could move to another country, you could, you know, move to another state even, and find a, a work opportunities if you're really hard pressed. But, uh, but yeah, I think I think there is a certain funneling, as you described, that's going on, especially with the STEM and the common core and now this bitcoin competency or blockchain not bitcoin blockchain competency
1: yeah yeah um you know so, um um uh, with the with the whole with the whole blockchain thing um you know it's basically making you know the old term uh you, this will go on your permanent record well it'll be very permanent right now all right once it's on that once it's on that ledger right um but you know you know, uh, a lot of my friends, uh, I mean, I told you my my high school background, right? So it was like, uh, I wasn't one of the dropouts, probably could have been, but most of my friends, a lot of them, I mean, people that I grew up with and, you know, love them to death, keep in touch with them, uh, a lot of them were dropouts. And it money nice than me, okay? You know what I mean? I went to school for like 26, 28 years, something like that. You know, I can't, I lost count, right? Some were in, in grand schools. Mid to late twenties, uh, and I and I got friends that some of them I not think some of them might not even have GEDs. I think most of them have GEDs, but right, and then you know, they went into construction, right? They went into construction, and that was what my you know my dad was a carpenter. Um, that was where he did siding and stuff, and I, I did my own siding thing at one point when I was uh, living down in Southern Illinois. Um, it was in, in between in between adjuncting uh, at one point um and my dad was always like uh you know, you know you go to go to go to school and you, you know you don't want to do this for a living you don't want to be on the hot side you don't want to swing a hammer you don't want to you know have to do physical labor and um you know i i, I think the, you know again like you say you, you're sort of fed this idea that well, if you go to college, well, then, you know, all these doors open up for you, right? Like, you, once you once you get your degree, then you just walk into these these well-paying jobs. That is not the case, man. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know what the statistics are, but it is a very sad uh, percentage of college graduates that don't do anything with their degree, that, that never go into a field that actually uses their degree right and what you do get is a nice chunk of debt right now i was lucky to get out you know because part was i had the assistantship and then i you know i I get some scholarships and stuff um so i so i was lucky to get out without debt but most a lot of people that i know are they have a a big chunk of debt and it's like not only could you not be in debt if you skip that whole college route you actually could have like already been making a, a ton of money, more than you know. And it's like more again, more than I make teaching at you know academic institutions with a master's degree. Um, something's not right about that. Mm. <laughs> Something is not right about that. You know, I, I I hate to sound like I'm sour about the amount of money I get paid. There's perks to it in the sense that as an adjunct. I think if I was full time, I might, I might have been fired by now uh, due to the book and my stance. I mean, I've I, you know, probably done getting close to a hundred of these interviews and never had anything I nice say about mandates or lockdowns or big tech or, you know, the, the woke stuff. So I think one of the reasons why, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as an adjunct, it's like, as long as, as long as I get my grades in on time and the students are happy right they 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 don't i'm giving my book to some people in the department i think i think i just fly under the radar because it's just like Mm. you know um so there's perks to that but you know um sometimes sometimes it's like man like i'd have a lot more time to research and write the things that i actually want to research and write if i was swinging a hammer still right like it would be a break because it's like you know i've I gotta grade papers all day. I gotta go through re- textbooks. It's you know constant analysis of information and text. And now when I'm done, now it's time to do you know what it basically is my hobby or my my passion, and that's you know what we're talking about now. And it's like it'd be easier to do this if I had been physically exhausted instead of mentally exhausted when I when I ship geared.
2: That's
1: an example again of again, right? Like, you know, if you wanna. You want to pursue uh, anything at a, at a at a successful level or at any sort of a fulfilling level. I mean, you just you're always on that precipice, right? You're always on that
0: on that edge, and I just something's you know, unavoidable. Yeah, and I I really think you should give yourself some credit because I know the professors that affected me when I was in school for the short time I was uh, were the type that flew under the radar. For sure. I remember I had one anthropology class with a guy who spent a whole week talking to us about uh, conspiracy theory, why conspiracy theories are part of culture. Like, and, you know, we all kind of got our own opportunity to research a conspiracy theory and present whether or not we thought there was some validity to it. And I was, I mean, I was thrilled at that. but It's not, you know, the one time that something like that happened an art art class, uh, I think it was like, um, you know, art in history or something like that. And the professor, I don't remember an exact anecdote, but the professor, what he was showing us was a direct tie in with what I was reading about in my secret history of the world, uh, by Mark Booth book, this book I had picked up at that age and really fell in love with, uh, has a whole bunch of images in it and I start looking through the center portion of the book and I see that oh we had discussed some of these paintings in class and like you know whether that guy knew it or not he was showing us paintings that had some kind of you know esoteric symbolism or maybe some you know hidden meanings that whatever you know they just resonated with me and I didn't really look at art like that until then. So I definitely give you credit, brother. I'm sure you've woken a few of your, uh, your pupils up. And I wonder maybe you have some stories of that. You ever have any students that have picked up your book and wrote you about it?
1: No, I haven't had any uh, students. And I haven't, by the way, I haven't seen a student in face-to-face in person. So my book came out October 2019. Oh, wow. Three months later. Right. Yeah. Have been in a classroom since.
0: Oh wow. Okay. Right? Well then yeah. And so
1: so one of the so the, right, they immediately pushed us all into online. And I knew the mandates were coming immediately. I knew it. I knew it. I looked at I looked at, you know, one of the things that I talked about in my book is the whole social credit system and how all the, the data mining from the egg tech is gonna feed into a social credit system that is being that is currently being built as we speak, right? We just basically need to Oh, Green light authorizing all the data that's aggregated into a score, okay? Uh, but I looked over at, at China, and I said, I knew they had the social credit system. I said, oh. and I knew that that would come in handy because it basically, right, it's it's permitting or restricting your access to the public square and commercial services based on the entire aggregate of your biopsychosocial data. So obviously your health data, is <laughs> gonna be important in the middle of a pandemic, right? Or so-called, uh, they're going to obviously, uh, you know, be tracking, you know, who, who, who may or may not have COVID. So the first thing you saw was, and I had my students read this article, and I had not read it all the way up until, and, and past the old mandate thing was, uh was a New York Times article, it you know, something like, in China, China fights coronavirus with uh, color codes. And what they had was these apps on the phone, and it was red, yellow, or green, and if you were in an area that, would, that had high transmission, your phone would turn red and you wouldn't be able to get through certain checkpoints and get into your house. It was yellow, like yellow, meant, But green was you were good. You, you were, you know, but you didn't have to like actually be sick or get a test. Like if you were in an area where, right, they somebody that did test positive and had, you know, their GPS location showed that they were there recently. Right. Well, you were in that area. So now you can't move. Now, this wasn't a vaccine passport. So they didn't have a vaccine yet. But it was an immunity passport, basically, right? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I knew right away that that, that was coming. I, I was like, oh, well, before we're done, they're going to try two things. One is you force vaccine, mandatory vaccine, and the second one is a passport to get around. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, oh, not, is it Contagion? It's the like 2011 or 2012, mm. That's how it ends. <laughs> and if you ever watch that movie and go back over and just like first watch the event 201 narrative right the one that they actually conducted is still on YouTube with Dolan Miller and the Gates Foundation WEF, and uh Jonas Hopkins right uh it's like a script from that movie. It's really interesting and they had consulted from the World Health Organization in that movie right I, I believe it was contagious um and so you know I I knew that, that was coming so when they finally started saying, well, you guys can come back now, and I'm like, they're going to come out with these mandates. I'm not going back. I mean, I would have liked to gone back into the, you know, I, I, that was my favorite part of teaching has always been uh, discussions, right? Especially when I teach my English 102, which is a research methods, argumentation, and research methods, um, and we go through Braden World, sort of, sort of a fun way to dive into lots of topics non-fiction topics relating to science and technology and right i mean the, the, the book was written in 1931 but you know it's it's forecasting into the future and everything that's in there right has an historical precedent and is now basically coming to fruition so it's a i i think it's an, an entertaining way to to write research papers and i think a lot of my my students enjoyed it um and so you know i miss i, I wanted to go back and talk to the students but I was like, I'm not doing it because I know as soon as I go back there, they're gonna they're gonna say you gotta get it. No, it was exactly what happened. That it was that fall, and they were like, (laughs) and they were like, yeah, no, no. If you want to stay in, you gotta get this. You gotta get the jabby. And um, so, there's one school now where they so so the governor in Illinois ended the mandates. Okay, so you can uh, so you don't have to. (laughs) There's no reason to do this, but. You're allowed to uh continue to enforce it or to enforce it more strictly than what was laid out in the executive board. So one of the colleges where I teach uh says you can come back in. The other one says you can't come back in. You still need to. A... That's for a test. And I thought, like now yeah, I'm not I'm not playing the test game either. I'm not I'm not giving you more data from these bunk PCR tests so that you can say, Oh, the transmission's up and then You know what I mean? Come up with a a, a reason to uh, lock down harder. So I am like, I'm not playing the test game and certainly not getting the jab. Um, So that's why I'm online. And so I haven't seen a student's face in like two years. Never had a student reach out to me, you know, like, Hey, I saw you on. uh, uh, And I I never, you know, I never taught a face to face class while the book was out where where I I, had, where I could give them say, Hey, you know, you seem to be interested in this stuff, you know, uh, more than, uh, than just getting a, a good grade. Like, you know, here's this book that kind of expands on some of the stuff we've talked about. Cause I think you're, you know, as you say, your teacher, uh, that teacher probably did probably, I, I would guess that I, I would survive that he knew. So he, he was aware of some of that esoteric stuff that was in there. Cause like when I teach writing world, right? I mean, you know, again, I'm under the radar and I'm aware that I am. But, you, you know, you don't want to, and just in an academic setting, it, generally, I mean, I, I don't like to assert, like, this is the position that you need to hold, or this is the way, you are. Know? So, so I always give them both sides, right? But if you look at the themes, right, and you sort of look at the themes uh, that we talk about in terms of the topics and how they relate to the novel, if you're paying attention, you can see the pattern. Right, you can see the you can see sort of the the historical arc and the narrative and what I'm pre- forecasting to be coming in the future. Right, now, I don't I don't quite say it like that. I don't start talking about the new world order and stolen bones, but you know there's there's definitely uh, there's, you know every semester is at least one or two students that you know they hang out after class, and ask more questions, ask more questions. You know, some of them, you know, you find out are into conspiracy theory stuff. You know, and and you know, so that was always fun. Um, but no, I've never had anybody uh, find the book here and reach out to me that I, that I had known from time. I had one person that I knew from high school, actually, but it wasn't stealing to mine, you know. And I was like, hey, I was looking like, up this woman, Charlotte Isherby, and lo and behold, I
3: found this other book by this guy. Uh, happens to be somebody who single night
0: to and that is that is somewhere I wanted to go next and I hope that does happen for you I think uh you know timing kind of uh prevailed there with the whole covid thing but yeah I think I think it, if you ever get in front of your students you'll have that impact for sure that you know young minds are are the least uh you know affected by all the propaganda it's when you get older and older when you become you know uh like a steel trap
1: <laughs> yeah, and i and i see te- you know well i, te- I like say bounce around but one of the schools where i teach uh mm-hmm. is is uh urban low income. Right. It's you know, it's actually where I grew up. Okay. <laughs> you know, but but I tend it tends to be that uh the students there are more open to or aware of, right, what, what I'm sort of trying to get at when we look at Brave New World and stuff than um than some of the students in my more middle-class uh uh institutions or the, the more middle-class population And i think some of that is because right when you when you come from uh you know an, an urban area that's basically been uh economically uh pushed to the wayside i mean you kind of know you're screwed already right? right and so you kind of you kind of uh you know you're looking for that you know whereas whereas what's funny is like and, you know when i have like more of a uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, I mean, which, which comes with that, you know, basically being you know, economically disadvantaged, you know, oftentimes you don't have, as a result of the institutional disparities, right, you, you probably might not come up with the same skills academically or professionally that, uh, that, that, a, that a middle-class student might have, right? I mean, just in terms of, right, access to, like, resources and things like that. Um, but despite, you know, whatever disparities are there, they still tend to be, right? Like you might like they, they might have more grammar issues in an essay, but the thinking is, it's more cognizant, it's more aware, it's of of the realities, right? Versus like some of the some of the students in those like middle class populations that have like really, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, not a lot of grammar errors. Like you know, I mean, got sort of the nuts and bolts down as, as far as the sentence level mechanics of writing, like, uh you know, by the end of the semester, they'll be writing about uh, why Malthusianism is wonderful, and we need to reduce population, or why genetic engineering would be just wonderful if we could have race-specific medicines, or you know what I know it, mean? Like, it's like it's not what I—I I certainly didn't pr- promote that. right, I, like I said, I show both sides of it. You got to give them the counter on it. But it's—I uh, think oftentimes, and this gets back to what i was saying about these—you know—certain people identify with they wrap their identity up with the institutions and it doesn't just have to be where you work or, or, um, your profession. I think sometimes just the mainstream institutions of society, like what comes on the TV, what the teacher says, what the, what, uh, you know, the president says, right. I mean, he just kind of, of accepted and serious value. Like, Oh, that media would never lie. Oh, you know, the teacher would never, never lie. The doctor would never lie. And so, um, a lot of times, you know, what they do, and so when, so when I present these arguments or these theories, of you know eugenics and enthusiasm, I think that I think they, the the reflex is he's the authority of the institution. He's sharing this information with me, therefore he must be affirming this information, and therefore I should affirm it as well in order to affirm the institution. Right, and I I don't think they expect the 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 instructor to be showing. Providing all of these, you know, very intellectual, academic, and professional theories and historical events, uh, and basically be asking the students to basically question or critique or challenge everything that they, you know. I mean, everything that their worldview has rested upon at that point. Um, and uh, so it's just it's just an interesting anecdotal observation between, you know, how, you know, the the in in one respect, you know, I mean. It, being successful in school might not always uh, make you, you know, smarter or 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 more, yeah. more aware of things. You know what I think, mean? yeah, and, it, and vice versa. Yeah. Well, and
0: it speaks to that managerial class that they're trying to create, and how you know people who maybe grow up in more comfortable situations with more resources tend to not question their uh, surroundings as much because, well, maybe they haven't had the resistance to to go there, but. You mentioned Charlotte before, and and I do want to bring her up. Uh, you know, she recently passed away, and thoughts and prayers to her family and and whatnot. But you're someone who met her and worked with her for quite a while. Uh, she helped you with your book, and I'm sure you helped her with things. So, what? How did that relationship forge? Where where'd you meet her? Did you reach out to her? How how did that go about? So uh, this is yeah. So
1: that's. So my first article that I wrote about education happened uh, about a year before Trump got in. And uh, we had a governor in Illinois, his name's Bruce Rauner, and uh, he's a Republican. And uh, there was this situation where he was basically stalling on passing the budget. And I saw this as a ploy to uh, privatize public, public services, including public. Uh, education and to push those public institutions into private receivership because if you didn't have the the state budget passed and you couldn't get obviously you couldn't get state funds out but you couldn't get federal funds either that was the way that the, the illinois constitution is written it might be the same you know ubiquitously across states but that's how it is in, in illinois and uh you know i never really planned to like write about education because I work in education. It's like, you know, keep a little buffer there. You don't know, want to kind of poo-poo where you work. And, uh, you know, one of the departments that I had worked for, I uh, was actually teaching GED at that time. It was adult education, GED stuff. And that, that uh, was funded at 90% federally. So 90% of the budget for that was federal money. So that means 90% of the budget for the department couldn't be pushed out, so they couldn't. Te- they couldn't pay the teachers. They couldn't. Couldn't do anything. Uh, and so I basically you know, lost that job for the time being and then bounce bounce around and do that. And I was like, well, I wasn't sure how long this was 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 going to go on for. So I uh, decided to write an article about it because I noticed that, that what was happening was everything that I heard Charlotte Isardy talk about. So she, you know, people don't know she wrote the book, The Deliberate Dumbing Down of America. Um, she was um, the um, uh, worked for the Office of Educational Research and Improvement. Was a, a senior policy advisor. Uh, this is this is a um, some department of the Department of Education. Uh, she worked under Reagan uh, in the ni- early nineteen eighties um, and blew the whistle on something called Project Best in nineteen eighty one. And uh, she she gave me all of her stuff. I gave, gave me all of her uh, her research. I have a copy, a physical copy of that. It's actually on my you can get it on my database. Uh I scanned it and put it on the database. Uh and and what uh what Project Best was uh basic education skills through technology. So it was a it was a program that was designed to uh change academics to workforce training uh that would be um carried out through psychological conditioning mechanisms that would be implemented through uh, computers, right? Uh, basically, the, the modern adaptive learning courseware is, uh, grows out of something that was uh, BF SCARE called the teaching machine, the analog teaching machine. So basically, um, what I had seen, uh, so so the privatizations was obviously the first one, I right? The public private partnerships, so, uh, and Rounder was a big proponent of charter schools. Uh actually a uh college prep. I think it's part of the noble network of charter schools in Chicago. Um, and, you know, when you've, and, and so he was, you know, he, uh, charter schools, for people that don't know, are their private companies that are publicly subsidized with tax dollars. Um, so it's, you know, th- it provides an alternative to public education in the sense that you don't have to go to the school. It's in your district. You can go to this to this private charter school. Uh, but because it receives those tax dollars, right, it still is beholden to uh s- state federal standards. Um, but it's basically a it's a public-private partnership. Okay. And Rauner not only promoted uh school choice, which is the euphemism for the charter school movement, but he promoted something called, uh I I used the term earlier, cradle to career. Cradle to career in his state of the state addresses, which is this state version of state of the union addresses. He would talk about cradle to career, cradle to career. So that's your workforce training, right? So you got public private partnerships, you got workforce training. At the same time, uh, I'd gone to a couple conferences uh, where they were promoting these things called P20 councils. So there's, um, so P20, so there's P16, P20, and there's P20 plus, so P stands for preschool, and then the the, the other numbers count for the ages. And so they early on was like, basically, Preschool through high school, and then they're like, well, not preschool through college. And then it's like preschool through what's also what the UNESCO refers to as lifelong learning. But the P20 councils are basically like these public private clearinghouses that integrate uh, corporate and government um, healthcare education and workforce development. Right. And, and so it's, it's they're basically um, state level councils to facilitate the public private partnerships. So then there was also, I was working for, uh, well, I was teaching, I was tutoring online for an online company in this particular company. Um, it was, it wanted to co-pilot us with uh, IBM's Watson. Okay, IBM's Watson is an artificial intelligence program. We do everything from uh, risk assessment, healthcare, finance, education, um, and so basically what this thing was going to do is it was going to data mine what I did when I was tutoring and they had a very rigid uh, format for for how you how you had to respond to the students uh, requests. And I quickly realized, well, that's that's to expedite the machine learning. All right. So if my if I always respond in this order and these in this template in these categories, the AI knows exactly that the first item corresponds to. Uh, you know, diagnosing the issue, right? The second, the second item in my response um, is going to be prescribing what the student needs to do. The third one is going to be modeling, right? Model how to do it, right? And so it makes it easy for, for the Watson to, to data mine. So I'm like, well, so basically every day I go to work and training Watson to, to replace you. So there's your, there's your, uh, and, and by the way, it does do adaptive learning. It does adapt, it has adaptive learning algorithms. And again, that's the, the modern, uh, the, the digital version of what B.F. Skinner called the teaching machine, all right? And so it was everything that she had said, right? Public-private partnerships through uh, school choice charter school movement, uh, replacing the academics with workforce training, and then and then integrating uh, the, the, uh, the computerized uh, operant conditioning, operant psychological conditioning. And so uh, I decided to write this article uh, mainly focused on just the corporatization uh that is the school choice angle. you know I want to make it tight. and she reached out to me. I uh you know, I thought I, I I thought about reaching out sending it to her but um some reason I couldn't find her you know was when, when I realized you know that she had her website I, like, I don't know why it was so hard to find, but one day I got an email uh, shortly thereafter and and I'm like, oh, this has got to be like a virus or something. Somebody's trying to trick me. Like, yeah, you know, it says Charlotte is repeating on it. And it says, thank you so much. And you was in all the And I'm like, you know, I got to click on it because it is her, you know, even if I get the, the virus, you know what I mean? Like, so, so uh, it'll be worth it. Uh, you know, just to check. And yeah, it was her. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, great job and everything. I uh, called me uh, on the phone um, and had, had a long talk and you know said doing good work keep doing on what you're doing and everything and uh, you know at that point i i realized like well so i wrote this first article about the you know the corporatization So like well i can make a, like an article out of each of those topics right the workforce training the, the operating condition the public private partnerships p20 council and i was like well let me let me write some of these articles and like maybe maybe this can be a book right like maybe these articles can become chapters and that's sort of uh that's sort of how i got uh got on that got on that journey uh she she put me in touch with um chris milligan who was my publisher at trying day and for those who don't know uh chris milligan also republished uh anthony sutton's american secret establishment introduction to the order of skull and bones they also uh, he also published and co-authored uh, fleshing out skull and bones with sutton um and they were very good friends actually um and i um actually i i I went visited chris uh went out to oregon and visited him last year last year it was at least last year 2021 um and he had some of sutton's uh files um he had had a little cabinet there a little file cabinet uh was mainly his future technology review and some of his report on the abuse of power um but it was uh charlotte's the one that put me in contact with him uh and i'm sure that helped make a pitch for my uh, for the book, I was pitching, saying, "You know, this." this she forwarded me there, and uh, f- the other thing that people might not know is that so the the way that Anthony Sutton, um, the primary source for his research, w- w- were the uh, the address books that Charlotte leaked to him. So Charlotte's dad and grandfather were both members of the Order of Stolen Bones. So uh, Samuel Clifton Thompson. I believe his grandpa and then cliff cliff thompson is uh his dad uh started to get him mixed up um and um she gave anthony sutton the these address catalogs that lists all of the members of the order their names but it also lists like their their personal and professional affiliations and associations right so are they a lawyer are they an engineer are they a- doctor are they are they a judge uh are they the president of a university are they clergy right like so if you need you know if you need some influence in a particular area or if you're going into business right and you want to consolidate uh your your wealth or your power with these other uh you know these other families that are part of the order right you use this address book to find these people and to, and to network um and so you know i say i have to say that you know my uh my book, which builds on Charlotte's delivery Downing Down of America and Anthony Sutton's book, right? I mean, it was published by uh, the publisher who, right, was, was in direct contact with Sutton. And I actually have here, these are the physical address books that she gave me, right? And you can see, and she's no longer there. So it's, she shared her, uh, what'd you call it, with everybody, anyways, or whatever. But, uh, address there right address there um but so these uh these were these were given to me amongst many many other things um and this this um so so you know so yeah so it's not just so it's not just that i did the research but it's like you know i guess i guess i'm part of that history now i guess
0: yeah absolutely i it's kind of like what we were talking about before this recording started and I will say Chris Milligan I've had him on the show first 20 episodes he was on he was episode 18 because of the impact these books made on me and you know the direct connection just through living in New Haven um, and you know I've always felt like as this uh, you know the the son of blue-collar people who kind of you know like my great-grandfather he was in zoning And then on the other side of my family, uh, they were immigrants, French from Canada, rural, super rural, like my great grandfather on that side uh, used to fill holes with dynamite and install telephone poles on the first roads up there in Canada. So, you know, if that says anything about my background, I've always had a little bit of a craw, maybe a bias against this elitism, this, you know, this this like pompous, you know, uh, country club, yacht club atmosphere that I grew up around, you know, because I am not cut from that cloth whatsoever. And I remember when I was young, uh, well actually it was when I was in college, I went to the library, my public library in my hometown, which is in New Haven County. And I found Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. I found this book in the library and you know, not this exact copy, obviously, but it wasn't, I don't remember if it was structured differently. Maybe it was a first edition or something, but it, it didn't have the images that this copy I have now does, but it, it kind of baffled me, right? Because here was like, not just one person saying that this group was up to something. Here's a whole collection of like eight or nine different authors, all showing different angles about this thing that I just learned about it. My favorite part about fleshing out Skull and Bones to this day is Chris Milligan's portion where he talks about the magic at Yale because there's something about, again, these universities where I think they're procuring some kind of landscape energy. And you you mentioned the architecture is very... Uh, noteworthy, no matter which university you go to, especially the Ivy League schools. But then when I found out that most of the Ivy League schools are all on one straight line, this ley line that's called the city ley line, I started to think maybe there's more to this. And I started looking at the you know, bird's eye view of New Haven and trying to suss out what means what. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of what Chris writes about in that, small section, uh, God, Magic, and Yale, Something I think it's titled something like that. It's in the middle of the Fleshing Out Skull and Bones book. He talks about this sort of Egyptian connection to what's going on in New Haven, right? And that's one of the, um, really one of the most standout features for me because I don't know where you stand on this, but I've recently taken a dive into Egyptian history and from what I've learned that a lot of these fascist ideas and a lot of the stuff that Hegel probably like, you know, brought to the Western lexicon, they were thought of and established in Egypt. You know, these like sort of fascist um, aristocracy, you know, ruled by elite type governments, they were sort of fashioned in that. Time And I know, you know, we're kind of straying away from what we've talked about this entire time, but for me it's all related because it feels like this elite group that set up these universities and probably was a part of the dumbing down of the rest of the country, uh, they're following a certain, you know, religion or a certain occult, you know, sort of ideology that they aren't broadcasting, you know, they hide behind the veil of, you know, religion in some cases and now science is is a convenient cover as well but there there seems to be something um going on and obviously skull and bones is you know a secret society but there's there's a lot of weird energy in new haven i i don't know um don't really have a question i kind of just got off on a tangent do you have any comments on my tangent there john
2: uh,
1: i mean you know if you want to needle a wax on Egyptology I'm not I'm not the scholar to right. to, to do anything precise with that. Uh, I will say that you know Hegelianism and Hegel himself is deeply steeped in uh you know hermeticism and just the the, the idea that the alchemical union or synthesis of opposites um, and you know it, 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 what, what a lot of people don't know, know is that actually you know evolution, the term evolution, that's Hegel's term. It's not Darwin's term. Right, Darwin just gives it a uh, a biological spin. Right, so we're, we're Hegel's a dialectical idealist. He thinks that history evolves through ideas. Marx takes it and says, Nah, it's material. History evolves through economic dialectics. Darwin says human beings evolved through uh, basically biological dialectics, and he actually bases it on uh, he was reading Malthus, and he mentions this in his autobiography. That it was when he was reading Malthus's ideas about uh, population. Uh, that he realize, okay, so since there's a limited number of resources uh, that the populations can contend with, that it's it's through that competition for those scarce resources that one group or one set of people will gain this advantage, that advantage will be manifest biologically and that'll be passed down. And it's through this that you get biological mutations and then you get sort of the progressive evolution of uh you know humans into into what we are today um and you know that what's what's interesting though is that that also kind of uh dovetails with you know the ideas of someone like pierre Théard de Chardin, right and it's just that instead of basically biological determinism uh being the, the driver of this evolution, sure, for Teilhard, it was something called the noosphere, which is basically the, the the intellect or the mind of God or of the universe, right? And sometimes, you know, especially in like New Age circles, you might sort of translate that into like frequencies or vibrations. And so you can kind of think of that as uh, this idea of noetic evolution or this idea of vibrational evolution is just sort of like the vibrational counterpart to the biological determinants. Right. so in other words right if, if the 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 human creature right evolves whether whether it's through ideas or through biology in the in the new transhumanist iteration it basically synthesizes the two right in the sense that right if we integrate the, the biology with technologies that basically are uh that we and we integrate through electrical signals effectively that right the that the bio the 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 biological mechanism is now sort of married to the vibrational or electric mechanism, right? And so the the evolution of the two can sort of be synthesized uh, into this into this new uh, god species that the transhumanists uh, are promoting. And you know, and this this all comes sort of out of a history of eugenics and 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 I'll, you know, we can go back to Hegel. Uh, and I and I, when I you know illustrate as much in the book. Um, and that might have been a little a little in a different direction as well but um I guess what I'm saying is that that religion whatever this 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 mystery tradition that they practice and in, in whatever ways it overlaps with Egyptology or just some of the other older mystery religions uh has basically uh, been manifest through other iterations uh in the last several
0: hundred years and some of those being hegelianism Marxism mm-hmm. uh, eugenics transhumanism so Right. And I really appreciate you demystifying that because, you know, from the untrained observer, you go and you look at this, the first cemetery in America that they have in New Haven and you see this Egyptian gate that says the dead shall be raised and this golden sun raw wing disc and you're like, what it you know, this doesn't fit into the story of like well, there were three churches, and they were Puritans, and they loved god, and you know, and then you know a hundred years later, they're like loving egypt stuff you know, and of course there's a there's an explanation that people will give us, but from my conspiratorial perspective, I feel like. There's a clear connection, and you, I'm really glad that you use the phrase mystery schools because it feels like the college system, not just Yale, Yale is partly responsible for this becoming a standard practice, but you have this theme of secret society, specifically with the Ivy League schools, and then that kind of broadens towards the fraternity culture as you go towards maybe like state schools and public colleges, and I don't know, I didn't experience anything like that at my community college. I don't remember there being any groups like that, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, you know, uh, call it out of complete question. I'm sure there's some that exist, but the predominant influential ones are at these Ivy League schools. Skull and Bones is only one of, you know, 40 alleged secret societies that are active at Yale to this day. I mean, 40 is a pretty big number Not all of them are doing, you know, uh, world changing actions, but uh, a select few are, you know, and and it feels like that mystery school religion, you know, has been modernized and given to us in the form of these secret societies in universities. So I guess that's where my interest in like the cult religion side of these people comes from, because it's pretty evident in what they do that there's some sort of um ideology that they believe in
3: yeah and i i think
1: that you know at the crux of
0: that ideology
1: or that that mystery religion is you know regardless of which historical cultural or or other uh iterations you wanted to point to at a particular moment in time I think what what they all have in common is basically the deification of self or basically this concept of, which gets back to this whole alchemical tradition of basically, you know, oftentimes, you know, you think of you know, alchemy as, you know, sort of, sort of the, uh, you know, the sort of the cliche, right? Turn, turning lead into gold, but there was also a deeper understanding of alchemy, which was basically the having to do with the, the, the psychic union of alchemy opposites and sort of this creating, getting to this to a transcendent state where where the where the human creation is basically uh deified, right? I mean in other words a religion of of man becoming his own God, of humans becoming your own gods. And uh you know, you mentioned the whole some of the parallels between um you know these academic roots. Uh so you know we have obviously the order at Yale, um uh, you know then there's also you know, the rose society right Out of oxford right and if you if you read cecil rose's stuff right he basically modeled that explicitly after uh the society of jesus you know, the jesuit society uh and also uh you know masonic fraternities right and so i mean even even the road society which spawns uh a, a whole you know history of what what uh quickly called round tables, right? first you had Miller's roundtable Group, and out of that came Council on Foreign Relations, and then you had the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and then later on that comes the Bilderberg Group, and then later on you have the Club of Rome, and then you have the World Economic Forum, and then you have the Trilateral Commission, and all of these basically are these 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 global NGOs uh, where you have people, heads of state, you know, sometimes royal families, media moguls, politicians, you know, businessmen of, from all industries get together and sort of plan the global economy. Uh, and I actually did some work with a friend of mine, uh Dr. Michael uh, Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. Um, he uh, wrote Springtime for Snowflakes and, and uh, some other stuff. Um, and he's currently working on a book uh, on The Great Reset that should be out. And I helped him with uh, a lot of the research uh, in basically the history of the WEF and basically uh another iteration of this round table model and, and what I discovered what we discovered was uh he makes a he's got a nice table of this that at the World Economic Forum I found over a hundred over hundred and ten uh World Economic Forum members or contributors who are also members of one or more of every all the other roundtables that I just mentioned. And actually the largest overlap was with the Rhodes Society. And with, what did the Rhodes Society want to do? Basically, it wanted to inculcate people into uh, a sort of, uh, you know, it wanted to spread British ideology, right? They wanted to basically um, find brain drain the, the the best and brightest from all their various colonial, um, um, you know, and protectorate nations. Take those people, uh, indoctrinate them with, you know, sort of, you know, British imperial ideology so that they would then come back and and sort of impose that upon, um, you know, their own societies and their own nation states. And, you know, this is basically the same model as the World Economic Forum's uh, Young Global Leaders model, right? Which is basically instead of going to uh, Oxford for, you know, a semester and being indoctrinated and and sort of brought into this to this uh, elite club, uh, you go to you go to the world Weekend, the young global leaders forum I think it's for like a week or something but then what do you do you go back and you basically promote it right? and so basically um you know the that the model of the order uh, which uh, Sutton uh, traces potentially back to the order of the Illuminati uh has is modeled in a similar way as uh the road society and, and actually you know, the illuminati itself right comes out of engelstadt university okay so all of these sort of um secret societies um basically have their roots have their origins in in university systems uh, and it's interesting to note again that these that these round tables these global round tables that like are now like the wef basically a public institution now right i mean like you know when people used to talk about the cfr and bilderberg it was like you know, there was a time when like bilderberg doesn't exist people would try to say right i mean no one's gonna tell you the world economic forum doesn't exist right and there and if you look at their rosters they have you know some of these people like wilbur ross you know it says in his wf profile is a member of bilderberg but what it shows is that um that out of these out of these secret societies, which come out of these these universities, who basically have a growth of these these basically these global NGOs that set policy globally now, and they even oftentimes use Chatham House rules. Chatham House is another term for the Royal Institute of International Affairs, and um, Chatham House rules are that um, you you can't share what was who said what at the meeting. So you can talk, so when you get to this meeting that's you know off off the books, people are gonna share their ideas and posit, hey, let's try this, or let's not try that. You can go back to your constituents and you can talk about the ideas, but you can't say who said it. Right. And that's the, the secrecy element of it. So that's so in the same way, right? These um, you know, these very public faces of globalism like the WEF uh, are basically just carrying out a, a slightly less secretive uh model that that grows out of uh, this this you know
0: these institutions like the order and and the rose society right right void of integrity and transparency these leaders you know think that we uh you know are so foolish that we don't recognize it and i think a lot of people get to the point where it becomes like oh well this sort of revelation type of thing where they want us to know what they're up to. So we can kind of psychically contribute our energy somehow to their deeds. And yeah, it is sort of insidious to have that form of secrecy where you could suggest something anonymously that, you know, will never be traced back to you. I mean, think about the types of people that go there and the decisions and influences that they have to, you know, just wield their opinions that way without any culpability. It seems a little, to say the least, uh, irresponsible, but we know that, you know, this benefit of the doubt should not be given. Uh, History repeats itself, and, you know, we have plenty of genocides to show that government does not treat its citizens uh, higher than it treats you know itself or its own ideas right i mean we're just sort of fuel for the fire in a lot of cases and when it comes to charlotte and, and skull and bones i mean what do you think ultimately motivated her to come public with this i mean obviously her family ties probably got her a nice job that you know, led her to be privy to information that she then whistleblowed. did that have any, you know, uh, effects on her? Was she, you know, harassed for that? Uh, Did she, you know, have to, like, take some protection to release that information? I mean, what was that like? I mean, obviously, you you knew her pretty well.
2: Yeah. I mean,
1: actually, I mean, so I made at least five, maybe six trips to Maine from Chicago, and at one point i I, li- I lived with her for a whole month and i was there for 30 days Uh she had had a brain bleed um uh maybe she was she was on eloquist which is a blood thinner i believe uh and they dosed it wrong and so she had a brain bleed and then um the doctor saved her. She kept a picture of the doctor at the nightstand because <laughs> because the story she told. and She got the she she's this is how she was. She's awesome, you know. She, so afterwards, you know, she just has brain surgery. She could tell the orders from the hospital the whole report, like, everything that they did, right? And because they have to, you know, they have to make a record of it. And uh, what she read in there was that the guy, the head dude surgeons were like, nah, she's so old. We don't want a That's invasive surgery. Like, let's just wait for it to stop bleeding. And this other guy was like, no, we're cutting it out now. You know? And she was like, if it wasn't for him, she's like, I don't think I would have made it, you know? And if he, and if it wasn't for him, I, you know, she, that, that brain bleed happened, um, early in 2020, like, like before Feb, around February, before February. And like, I had, you know and we we call frequently and I couldn't get a hold of her. I'm like, man, what happened? I'm like, is she oh I know what I'm thinking she's she was ninety one when she died. So I'm gonna get close to ninety two. All right. So you know obviously it's a possibility. Um and um you know uh, so so you know I so I spent a lot of time with her and um you know I can tell you that how did she get onto uh how did she get onto uh I guess, you know, league these, using these books. Uh, so she, so uh, she, she worked for the Red Cross. So she worked for the Red Cross at one point. Okay. I mean, I, I'm trying, I can't remember the exact order of this, but she worked for the Red Cross and then she worked for the State Department. And is in the State Department, she worked in Middle Eastern affairs and she worked in Soviet affairs. And at one point, she was even taking dictation for John Foster Dulles, right? Who's uh, I believe secretary of state at the time, right? You know, some stories about taking dictation for uh, Abba Ebon and Golda Bayer are talking and, and uh, uh, you know, she's, and she's taking notes for, for Dulles. Um, and so when she was in the red cross, she largely worked in countries um, that were, you know, under Soviet occupation or, were or, uh, you know, in in the midst of a, of a conflict with the Soviet Union, so she was like a an staunch anti-communist her entire life. Uh, and that, I don't know, you know. I don't know if that started with this. I think I think Red Cross was first, then State Department. But either way, this was sort of the common theme. Um, um, not so much Middle Eastern affairs, but you know, Soviet affairs and and the Red Cross stuff. And she'd said that she would met people um, when she was. Doing the Red Cross stuff and um, people people have been targeted by uh, some of the communist regimes and like she tells a story about one one person the, the uh guy the guy was you know they wanted to hear anybody that was intellectual so like this one guy was a pianist he was like you know world class and you know this suggested this this man had a brain that might be uh, you know one, one of these students that doesn't conform right so uh, so they, they cut his hands off. Okay, and then another another person said that uh, her, her parents had their heads cut off and carried around on a pike, you know, and, and, and we're told, this is what happens if you resist. This is what happens to resistors. And so she was, you know, she was overseas for a long time, I want to say. So she was born in 1930. I think she started this, you know, the, the State Department stuff and Red Cross in like the 50s, okay? <clears throat> and she comes back around the 70s. So she hasn't been in the United States for like 20 years or like, you know, it's, it's at least a decade. I mean, it's close to 20 years. And she comes back and uh, goes to a school board meeting. And, um, and there's a little round table of parents and they're asking like, well, what, what do we, what's a good curriculum? What do you, what do you all want to see uh, your kids learning? And Charlotte says something like, well, you know, I just, I think there's just, you know, the constitution and, you know, good, good, you know, good morals and values. And then she says, everybody goes, whose morals? Whose morals? Like sort of the beginning of kind of this, you know, what has become this hyper-relativist postmodern type of uh, wokeism. Um, And she was, she was thrown off by that because it's like, you know, there was no, there was no question about, you know, whatever was the common values, at least that's, you know, that was not the world she remembered. Right. And, um, So she started, starts to look at some of the curriculum that they're, that they're, you know, proposing. And um, she kind of sees like, you know, some of the, um, you know, some, some very, very communist kind of uh, rhetoric and propaganda kind of being um, whisked into the, into these curriculums. And at one point somebody, uh, you know, so she was going and asking questions about these at the, at these school board meetings. And one of the other, might have been a parent or a teacher. I want to say she was another teacher. She said, "Yeah, you're you you're on to something, but you don't quite know what you're on to." So she was like, "I'm going to pay for you to go get this change agent training." You can see this green book here. It says "Change Agents Guide to Innovation in Education." This is the book that she. I mean, the, this is the book, not just like you know, a copy of this text. Like this is the book that they gave her <clears throat> when she went to this training. It's really interesting. book. I, I one of these days, like at time, I, I want to just do a uh, get my document cam out and just just look through some of the strategies they have in there. But the change agents, what they do, and and this is a term. Look, if any, if anybody out there has ever, um, and it's not just in education, but it's in other disciplines as well. But I remember when I was getting trained to be an educator, they talked about change agents all the time, like it was a positive thing. It was I never had the sense that it had any of this other conversation? until like, till I came by and got this book or, or saw this book, she told me the story. Uh, and the change agents, okay, are there to like, you know, uh, subvert the the traditions of the of the, the you know not just America at large but the the local communities and to basically subvert them and supplant them with, uh, you know, this Marxist communist collectivist, you know. Uh, uh, Propaganda curriculum that would sort of drive us into this new world order, right? And we can we can sort of see how it's evolved. And one of the things that was mentioned in there was for change agents how to identify the resistors, meaning right, like so. If you're in there, you're trying to sort of change everybody's values, and there's going to be people in there who are like whoa, whoa, whoa! Like you gotta there's there's all these techniques in there, like how you isolate the person, how you make them look. Make, make other people think that there's something not right about the person, right? And to, and to otherwise marginalize their opinion. And so she was like, well, wait a minute, like the resistor is so she thought about the woman talking about the head on the pike. And so she sort of associates the two and she's like, well, I'm a resistor, right? And like, and so like, that's me, <laughs> it's me, you know? And um, so that, so, so what she did was she ran for school board um, and you know this sort of be, began her own dive into what what they were doing with the education system, and so uh, she she ran for uh, uh, ran for school board and, and became you know a member of it, uh, uh, you know one of the, the officials on the board. Uh, that lasted for a little bit, and then um, that was she used that to get um, to get into the Department of Education. And at the time, um, the department, so when Reagan ran on, okay, so the Department of Education you know, is, was form, formed in uh, 1979, all right? Before that, it was the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. So all three of those were combined into one department. So, uh, and they were like, they had separate offices, three had separate offices. And so when they came up with, uh, in 1975, um, they passed a bill so that those offices got their own departments. Right, so the Department of Education, or the Office of Education, becomes a Department. Office of Health becomes Health and Human Services (HHS), um, and um, I believe I believe the um, Department of Labor grows on that as well. That I'm certainly the first to do, um, and and so in 1979, when uh, you know, in 80, in, in when when Reagan came to you know take the reins of the country, he was running on a platform where he was going to abolish the department. It was only a year old, you know, and it was already this big push. whoa, whoa, whoa! We don't need a whole this big federal machine, right? Basically, running uh, all of our local schools and state schools, right? Like, we don't need it. We don't need a, a such a t- top-down approach and all that all those government strings attached. So, she feels like one of the reasons why they let her in there was because, um, you know, there was there was some musings that in the you know, the department wouldn't be there very long. Uh, but lo and behold, that's not how, that's not what turns out to be the case, right? Like, so when she gets there, uh, she spends the whole time uh, basically digging through files, <laughs> like trying to see, like, you know, what what is going on. And they give her different projects, you know, and, and so they'd have different sort of sub-departments. One was school choice. Another one was technology. All right and uh, each time they put her somewhere she'd start pulling out files and asking questions and things or you know and they'd be like Oh, let's move you over here and then she'd find something else and then they'd move her again sure. eventually she found project best uh and in between the time when she found best uh and had been looking through some of stuff a friend of hers and a friend of mine whose name is uh uh Anne herzer Ann herzer uh she was very high up in the arizona uh, the, the American Federation of Teachers, Arizona chapter. And she, uh, she sh- talked Charlotte about the Skinner method and how that was being implemented in, uh, in the school system. So the this, this Skinner method is this whole stimulus response. It's, it's operant conditioning, but it grows out of this classical conditioning that was the stimulus response method that Jill Helmut came up with in Leipzig, Germany, uh, back in the late 19th century. And basically what it does is it boils, it reduces learning to um, <clears throat> which by the way, in, in the order of skull and bones is, is instrumental in importing stimulus response psychology here, but um basically it it reduces learning, all, all cognition to behavioral responses to stimuli to reflexes, right? Like so uh has got a book called Beyond Freedom and Dignity. And for him, basically you there is you no know, more moral uh law there is no consciousness like th- these are all sort of ephemeral superstitions uh terms that we use uh they're they're basically the uh, you know the exhaust or the you know the uh the, the waste that comes from the from the reflexive responses right so for him right you don't have any freedom right you you just respond to stimuli and, and something is only you know it's only a bad response because it was bad stimuli, right? The environment was structured enough. So basically what it's trying to do is uh, hamstring the actual the thinking mind, the inner monologue that you hold in your head that actually creates, right? The, the questioning, the introspection uh, that you use to sort of have volition and, and make your own choices about how to respond to stimulus or whether to respond to stimulus right so the idea here is they just want you to be as we talked about with you know one of english's principles is basically just have these fixed reactions that would basically be designed for workforce competency uh in this in this global economy and so uh it was hers where they taught her about that and so when she saw that in project Best, she blew a whistle on it and uh that was what got her uh basically got her fired right and so that was 1981 uh and she would have given Sutton these address books a couple of years later and her dad was ill at the time he was um he was getting ready to pass away I, you know I mean it might have been a couple of years but I mean he was they were taking care of him he was living there with them and um you know he and um she, 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 she said that he would, when she would have conversations with Sutton on the phone and he's in the other room, we could hear, um, and, you know, she said before he passed away, he said something like, you know, if I, if I had more time, I, I would help you. But then, you know, she tells stories and loves, so. Uh, is then fleshing out so and bones, she writes a little piece about her dad in there and, um, you know, I had different, we had different ideas about things right? Um, and, um, you know but he 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 let he, he let her be independent very independent right and she said you know when she was when she went overseas you know she probably in her 20s this is nineteen, forty, fifty. 50 you know the ADMs. her dad's friends would be like what do you doing let your daughter you know, run around the planet like this I'm like i can't tell her what to do she does not she does what she wants you know and, and you know and that was how he raised her and uh you know uh she is, she's very fond of her dad and grandpa and uh, you know, say he was super generous guy, and I believe it because uh, you know she was incredibly generous. And uh, you know, you mentioned like these like you know the, the, these elite class. I never, I never felt not at home. Like I never felt like I'm very working class man. I've already told you all how much money I make, right? I, mean, I love that. You know, I basically got a white collar job and I got academic credentials, but I mean that's not that's not where I come from. And if you just want to talk about you know money you know this she doesn't get me in that bracket either uh but i never felt like you know what i mean like i was in some like uh you know blue blood <laughs> castle or something it was just like she's very down to earth had a super good sense of humor um you know and she got it from somewhere you know what i mean so um but she was very much a patriot and you know and very much you know very very well she became catholic later but was very uh they're always very Christian. I believe they were Anglican prior to that, or Episcopal. Same, same difference, right? Um And so, I mean, I think some of some of her, her spiritual values, sort of her, her patriotic values, um, and the freedom that she was allowed as a as a uh, daughter to you know make her own decisions. I think all of that sort of uh, made Charlotte the person she was, and, and and made her you know influence her to, to take the route that she took. Uh, you know but she was always like that like she'd never, uh, she to, you know, she liked you know if you were doing something that, that uh you were trying to hide and, and it needed to be exposed you know she she wanted to do that you know so
0: yeah yeah and i'm certainly grateful she did i mean you know having that position to be able to look through those documents with that objective i'm sure you know, based on what we said earlier, very few people like that get to those positions anymore, you know? And uh, so when it comes to what she found, unless you have something to say real quick. Oh, go ahead. No,
1: there's a one, I mean, I don't wanna, I but there's one that's interesting because you just reminded me. There's a couple of, so she would often say that she felt like God put her in spots where it showed her things before she understood what she was looking at a lot of times. And someone has a story she told about like technology. She told me there was this uh, like when I showed her, you know, I mean, because largely what I did to expand on her book, hers largely focused on the federalization and 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 uh, and the reprint looked at the corporatization. Uh, I'm looking at largely just technocracy and the technocratic aspects, right? And like basically, what has what project best evolved into? In you know, I was in you know, and she she I gave her a copy, obviously, and um you know, all the transhumanism, AI. And she told me a story where one of the per- people she worked with, Arthur Melnid, um he, he, he said when they would go and they would have lunches, this is in the 80s, he would tell stories about, tell her about like robots and AI and like, how in the future it's all going to be like this. And she was like, it just sounds, she was like, it's like, I mean, I heard him, you know, but it wasn't like, what? Like, you know, it was just kind of, kind of went over, went over the head you know, and, uh, she felt like, she was like, I think that was, she was like, I think that was God doing that on purpose because if, cause if I would have, she's, she, it's her talking if, if he would ever, if I would have, uh, if I had known what I was looking at earlier, I might, not have, I might have been, uh, you know, pers- persona non grata before I got my hands on, um, uh, project best. Yeah. Right. And, and, um, so that was just, you know, yeah, that was, that was something that I wanted to, uh, to note there. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I can relate. I think that was part of what I told you, uh, before we started recording where I was in, you know, George Bush's former home the day he died. And I had no idea that's where I had been, you know? Um, and it, it is interesting. I I think that it's exactly how things come to people sometimes, you know, through divine inspiration. And it feels like, uh, you know with yale and and this elite class yes religion and some occult stuff is a part of it but the technocracy side of it seems like a outgrowth from that right because you have this idea that was very influential at least from what i've learned in the new haven colony of the apocalypse, a book of revelations, right? And this idea has been spread far and wide. It's still used to this day to strike fear into people's hearts. And, you know, I don't know where you stand personally on Christianity, but, you know, I personally don't really subscribe to that notion. And there's a variety of inf- interpretations on in the book of revelations, but there's this more insidious interpretation that gets used, right? This idea that, oh, the world's going to end and we need to bring the world to an end because that uh, that's going to bring God back, and He's going to judge us favorably for doing His dirty work to bring about His judgment, right? And that, it almost feels like that's who these skull and bones folks think they are—like they're filling this role of like the the uh, ordained devil or something like that. I mean, have you come across anything that feels that way when you're looking into when you were looking the school world order? Because I mean, a lot of people who study. Technocracy and and transhumanism, it has that kind of sinister element to it. It has that sort of occult element. I mean, even some of the early origins of uh, the devices that became what is now computers and the Internet. They were cryptographical machines used by secret societies. You know, the, these sort of number crunching devices that they used to create codes and things like that. So there there is definitely a link between technology and the occult. But, yeah, I wonder if that's come up for you.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, so a couple of things. I mean, Chris can talk more to the whole uh, what you're talking about as far as um some uh, some members of the order and their their idea that um they're god's elect in, in hell basically or something like that and and that right they're sort of just like the antithesis the necessary antithesis to uh you know god's elect in heaven right and and they are and the well, there is a large uh milieu of calvinists uh in in the older families in the order in skull and skull bones but um chris chris uh can wax on that more uh more articulately um you know And then and then definitely and there definitely is i uh, um a lot of members of the order and clergy okay especially early on um and you know i mean even nowadays uh like as you know i think this is always sort of a um a narrative that's used to maybe um stir up uh you know or to steer uh, the politics and economics and and society at large. Uh, And that is sort of these these post-apocalyptic, and yes, many of them, you know, uh, Christian or, you know, um, Christian-flavored groups or sects, right? I mean, like, uh, basically, uh, you know, if if we can have Armageddon, right, then Jesus will come back. Uh, and therefore it's good, right? I mean, which you know, this, this is totally an inversion of any any principled sense of right and wrong, right? I mean, if we do wrong, it'll bring right. Yeah, I mean that's you know, it, I don't think that's Christian Christian concept at all. Um but um you know, when you're talking about just technology and the occult, I mean, you know, I just I just think about maybe you know, basically uh um oh, no, not right. But, <laughs> but obviously I thought this had one square square and compass on this history of Freemasonry. Um when you think about the, the, the square and compass, right? In, in Masonry, right? And then the G in the middle, right? And the G means several things, right? So you got uh means God, means Gnosis, means geometry, means Genesis, right? I mean these are some of the some of the meanings that, that are associated with the G, right? And then the square and the compass right i mean these are the instruments of architecture and engineering right and uh the the uh you know the square okay uh with a square you can make angles right and with a compass you can make curved lines right? and with curved lines and angled lines you can make basically any geometric pattern in the universe right and so if you and in other words right if you can to combine all those g's if you can if you can master geometry, you can achieve gnosis. Thereby, you can become your own god, and then you can generate your own reality. Right? And you know this, and it's if you've ever seen Space Odyssey two thousand and one, right? I mean, this is this is the beginning scene. This is exactly what they're showing. Right in the beginning, you know, have the the monkey people, right? They're on all the forest, they They're herbivores. They live alongside these other animals. Then all of a sudden, one day, right, the obelisk, which if you look at it, it, it it's it's basically a square and a compass, right? The obelisk is from the angle that Cooper gives us, right? It's it's a square, right? It's a rectangle, and then above that is the crescent moon. That's the compass, right? That's the angle line. That's the angle and the curve, right? And then the the monkey is sitting there and he's looking down at this bone, and he starts kind of messing with the bone, and he realizes that that curved bone is the same as the curved moon. So now he's abstracting pure geometry, right? I mean, the geometry is expressed in, in all of nature, but like pure geometry, like a perfect circle or a perfect square, right? Like that obelisk, like, you know, nature almost never, right, drew through, through uh, you know, geomorphology produces a perfectly square rectangle, right? I mean, like, it's basically in some ways unnatural, like right? that pure geometry. but right? So when he sees that, he's, he's now able to abstract Right, uh, this concept or this idea, right? Uh, you know, this 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 perfect circle existing basically only in the mind, but being manifest in all these other imperfect versions, and then that monkey's ability to understand that and be able to extrapolate now, so he starts messing with that curved bone and he sees he can get leverage with it. So now he's can ex- now he can uh, extrapolate principles of leverage right they can be used for building architecture engineering and uses it as a weapon right and so now he becomes uh he becomes homo erectus so now they're not on all fours he stands up because he's got to use his hand to carry this weapon right and then he comes over and he kills the other monkeys and uh you know steals their water uh and then he throws the bone up and as the bone goes into the sky it spins and then the camera fades to a space station And basically what you're saying is that from this primitive concept of understanding of geometry, the application of tools was invented. And then from that basic use of leverage with a club, right, you can start to refine and make more precise those principles of abstract geometry. And then you can eventually develop not just a space station, but remember what's in the space station in Space Odyssey is uh, it's hell, right? It's A.I., Right, and if you just think about even look, even uh, biometrics, right, or genetics. Okay, it was very important that we discovered, uh, you know, Crick and Watson discovered the double helix structure of DNA, and not just the chemical components of it, right, the, the ATCG, but the actual geometric pattern, because uh, biochemistry is largely dependent on geometry. In the sense, there's something called allotropy. Right. And so when you're looking at like, uh, you know, when, when you're in when your biochemistry metabolizes things, you know, like when enz, enzymes break down proteins and things, the reason why they do that has to do with uh, not just the chemical compound or content, but in other words, the geometric shape that it takes. Right. And so basically certain enzymes might have like a nook and then a protein might have a cranny and it's, and they sort of have like a lock and key effect. And when those come together, right, it releases Uh, it breaks down the protein and and then you metabolize it. Okay. And so the understanding of the geometry of the biology is what enables you to basically manipulate and re-engineer the biology. And the same thing goes with even just biometrics when you're measuring like, so facial recognition, if you've ever seen, right, what does it look like? That's a bunch of triangles together. Okay. And, and, you know, basically you you take that average of angles and, and give it a numerical value and that's your personal biometric, uh, Score, right? And so all of this, right, from not just building the tools that we use to manipulate the environment, but actually dissecting the human body itself and then using those tools to re engineer that body is all based on understanding of geometry, which for, you know, uh, people like the Masons and, and, you know, other mystery school uh, religions is it's, it's a sacred thing, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it's platonic, right? And it's, I mean, this is sort of, you know, it's not as old as some of the mystery schools, but Plato's ideas of the Platonic solids, right? Your icosahedron, dodecahedron, et cetera, right? These these the three-dimensional shapes that have uh, an equal number of uh, faces and sides, right? That are that are symmetrical. Um, and, and this idea that it, for him, this was these were the forms of the universe of creation, right? And so again, right? Uh, your understanding of geometry can enable you basically manipulate not just the world around you but the self and by doing so um you know you basically you become your own god right i mean now like if you can literally recreate yourself in your own image right you 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 basically achieved uh some some form of self deification uh and thereby you you can generate your own reality if you think about something like vr i mean right now you can really generate your own reality using again Right, just virtual uh, uh, well, uh, manifestations of all the all the geometric principles that that I just laid out. So, yeah, I, th- I think that uh, I think there's a, there's a
2: uh,
1: and and again, this is this this is the uh, this is what Kubrick is telling you, right? And then and then by the end of it, what happens? He's reborn as the Star Child, basically, right? right? And there's all, there's other Masonic symbols in there, but it's very it's very Masonic, and you know, I think obviously the Masons are. Tracing that back to earlier mystery school of traditions, and and then today,
0: right, we see it manifest in, you know, transhumanist technology, right, right, and in that sort of creation, co-creation, even maybe with a Hegelian dialect kind of mixed in, where they're suggesting things and conditioning a response. Do you think that? Someone like Aldous Huxley, who I know you've spent a, a great deal of time studying him as well. Uh, do you think he was sort of like a, a a prophet of the new age in that sense? Maybe had privileged knowledge that he sort of spun this tale with and. You know do you think there was an element of mysticism that led to his accuracy or do you think it was more so that he was in touch with people who were in the know he was in the know himself maybe even a part of some secret society uh, what's the scoop on Aldous Huxley because I feel like that whole generation of sci-fi writers really set the stage for what was to come next with someone like Kubrick and you know the filmmakers who took that that place uh, after you know writing had been surpassed by film
1: yeah with Huxley um I th- it's both I think um so in other words he was uh he was very close with uh, uh some of the top scientists at the time okay and um and just other intellectuals more broadly right in terms of you know politics economics and things like that uh but then he was also very much into uh he's very interested in you know sort of the esoteric right and and sort of uh uh more mystical approaches to understanding the human psyche and i mean huxley is uh, i mean his his influence on everything i mean cannot be understated uh so so his uh, okay so his his grandfather is th huxley right thomas Thomas henry huxley he's also known as darwin's bulldog okay uh in some ways i like to say that darwinism could actually in some ways be more aptly termed Huxleyanism to the extent that it wouldn't have been as popular as it was if T.H. Huxley didn't go around promoting it at all these lectures, because Darwin doesn't really like public speaking. They didn't want to go around and, and talk about it. He wrote his, you know, uh, uh, On the Origin of Species. Um, but it was, it, what what made it popular, what what got it sort of uh, got its foot in the door and accepted in the halls of academia was was Thomas Henry Huxley um and he was a member of something called the x club and he's uh he's fellow of the royal society as well but he was a member of the x club and um the x club is kind of like a secret society where where a lot of these uh scientists uh, of the time would get together and, and sort of pontificate um so he does have kind of hey, i i've not found anything uh uh where he's actually uh you know I, I, affiliations with masonry or robes crucianism or any of you know, those sort of mystical orders um but i did find this is in my book Maybe i will pull out the pictures here in my, but they got it abacus
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's i mean abacus led to what i was describing <laughs> er, earlier with those cryptographic devices right i mean i'm sure you you thought of that when i said that but yeah very cool so Please, please show us this for the audio listeners. Uh, you can go to Rockfin and, and check out these images. And you know, I'm gonna take a little screenshot and we'll put it somewhere for the audio uh, people who are too stubborn to go to Rockfin. But yeah, please show show us uh, what you got here.
1: Okay, yeah. So I found, uh, I went to a used bookstore, Life and Letters of Thomas Henry Huxley. Okay, okay it's written by Leonard Huxley, that's his son. Okay, which is all oh, of is father. Uh, so I mean this is a, not an autobiography, but it's a biography contains some of his letters, but it's got letters, comments, and so the commentary is from somebody that didn't just know him, right? He was his son, his family. But this is an interesting picture. I think mean, this might not mean anything, but I'm i I'm to tie it in some some other interesting connections he had with uh people at Yale. Okay. Um here's him with the whole, you know, with the hand in the coat. Right. You know, and I've heard people say that this, you know, is, is, is the Masonic or it means something. I've not been able to actually find anything that definitively says what it means and whether or not it's associated with a particular secret society or mystery school. Right, But I mean, that caught my eye. I'm like, that's interesting. So you look at the other, the other one here, the other volume of it,
0: He's holding the skull for some reason. Oh wow!
2: So he's
1: holding the skull with no jaw,
0: with no jaw as well, which is important too. There's no mandible. Well, I mean,
1: tell me me what that. What do you. What do you infer
0: from that? Well, most most uh, like Jolly Rogers sometimes would have the jaw attached, right? And when it's used in a secret society context, there's never the jaw because that implies secrecy, right? And Obviously, if you're holding a skull, the likelihood of the jaw still being a ch- attached is probably low, right? I don't think a lot of s- skeletons remain that intact. But, yeah, that it definitely is one of the things they talk about. Um, re- very briefly, somebody mentions it in this book, that the fact that, you know, as you could see, the crossbones are there uh, with no... Mandible. I think that goes back to Freemasonry, though it might not be explicitly something Skull and Bones chose. You know, uh, like yeah. it was already a part of the the symbolism before they came along. But yeah, definitely the, the the lack of a jaw might imply a secret society.
1: Yeah, and then so so what's interesting is so in in one of these volumes and it's the particulars in my book. It's been a while since I thought about it or gone over it. Um, uh, so might be a little infelicitous here, but. At some point, he's invited uh, to the United States to go on a tour and give some lectures. And one of the first places he stops is over in Yale in Connecticut. And he mentions there that um, everybody was making a big deal about him, and there was some connection with with the Peabodys. Okay, you know, and, and this you know Peabodys are. Uh, I mean, you know, I remember when I was a kid in the uh, watching like uh, Sesame Street and I was like, this is brought to you by the Peabody Foundation, right? This is a this is old, old money type family, um, you know, with foundations and, and other and other financial interests. And um and there's there's some connections uh between Peabody and some members of the order of skull and bones, and like I said, the the precise
2: some
1: of this escapes, me, but it's in the book. And um at one point, um he goes to Johns Hopkins University, and he gives the inaugural speech. Well, Johns Hopkins University was set up by Daniel Click Gilman. Daniel Click Gilman was one of the troikas, one of the members of the Order of Skull and Bones. Uh, it was there that, that he uh, hired uh, G. Stanley Hall, to be the first first ever, uh, start the first ever American Department of Psychology. He was himself a student of what okay, but uh, he invites... T.H. Uh, Huxley to give this inaugural speech and he had the speech. one of the things he stresses is this problem of overpopulation. It's just kind of funny to me. Um, and there was this there was there was uh, he bought he really bonded with either some of the people at Yale or or Gilman himself. like I said I, I, I'm foggy right now. Um, but I do not know we were going to somehow veer into this. I gonna brushed up on it beforehand. Uh, But one of the, one of the affinities that he had was either, like I said, either this Yale clout or with Gilman uh, was uh, their love of German literature, right? And if, if, you know, but if your audience uh, is familiar, uh, you know, The Order of Skull and Bones is the second chapter of a society that has its origins in Germany, right? And so, right, they're bonding over this sort of uh, Germanophile inclinations that they have. Right. He stops. He's hanging out with uh, uh, he's close to these to these Peabody connections that are sort of in that circle. Then he goes to the J- Johns Hopkins University, talks about overpopulation, uh, you know, and, and was invited there. You know, D.C. Gilman was a, he founded the school. So I believe he was the president at the time. Uh, and then later, Gilman would hire one of his assistants to, to, to uh, teach Either physiology or biology, one of the life sciences departments uh, or sub disciplines. And this guy's name was Henry Newell Martin. And before he came to Johns Hopkins and was hired there, he was a, a lab assistant or some kind of a academic assistant of T.H. Huxley. So, you know, I saw so I documented. I, I mean, there's a lot of, you know what I mean? Like, I, mean, I can't say no, that, I... that he was connected to him. And I can't say that, but there's a lot of. Interesting stuff going on, right? Between the hand and the skull and, you know, who he's connected to and the things he's talking about and then how that sort of takes on a life of it's own at those institutions.
0: Yeah, right. And even the... Um... The position of the skull in his hand is oriented almost like he's going to drink from it. And that is one of the alleged things that goes on in the tomb is, is maybe these skulls are used as goblets or, you know, chalices. And they're, they're made to drink from them at certain ceremonies. But uh, Daniel Coit Gilman, I guess implore everybody listening to go and look up a picture of him because he is a very strange character i mean in his in his main picture on wikipedia he looks like a sorcerer like the way he's standing is like a cape he's got like things on his desk in front of him and it was a little bit reminiscent of that picture you just showed me which kind of brought that to mind so to hear that they were familiar with each other is not surprising there's tons of other connections we can go to i mean edgar Allan poe famous resident of baltimore uh he you know allegedly died under mysterious circumstances and i believe you know wrote the cast of uh i don't know that yeah he wrote that uh, alluding to the masons and and some people think that that was you know part of why he died so soon and and yeah that that whole stretch from Baltimore to New Haven and up to Boston, it's on this city ley line, which in the colonial days was known as Satan's axes because everything West of that was, you know, wild, untamed, the realm of the, the devil, right. From that puritanical kind of mindset. So yeah, I I definitely, I really appreciate you sharing this with me. I think we ought to do another conversation soon uh, just on Huxley and, and more oriented on school world order because, you know, obviously I hadn't had the opportunity to brush up on that, and I would love to interview you on the book after I've read it and, you know, talk to you further on those ideas. But, you know, just kind of closing out on on Skull and Bones here, I mean, We've talked a lot about is or and, and we talked a little bit about, you know, your thoughts on how Skull and Bones has affected the education system. But if you could put it in a sort of like, um, you know, conclusive statement, like, what would you say for maybe the most skeptical of the audience? This is the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast, so people might want to know. Like what? What's the most definitive proof you think of the orders? Uh, you know, sort of manipulation of our education. Is there anything that you would boil it down to? Anything you would show people, uh, or anything you want to kind of finale with? I mean, you're the you're the professor, not me.
1: <laughs> um, I mean, I guess I guess I mean I guess I can sort of give you like, uh, it's, there's no, there's no one single thing. There's there's a few things. Okay, so so the first one is that. Um, they basically set up the modern university system as we know in the United States okay some of the most uh, most prestigious colleges were were set up by it. the order this includes uh among among others um Johns Hopkins University uh Cornell University and then also um University of California Berkeley uh and this these were um, set up by the Troika, uh either Daniel Clay Gilman, Andrew Dixon White, or Timothy Dwight, respectively. <clears throat> Gilman had his hands in all three of them, uh in, in one way or another. Um, they also set up compulsory education system. They were influential and in, and in, in setting up to compulsory education system. That was through Alfonso Taft at Antioch College. Uh, and they promoted um Horace Mann. And I believe G. Stanley Hall was at Antioch at a time and and um and and was and rubbed elbows with tap as well my name been uh sort of catapulted by TAP, uh Alfonso. um as you know they set up the land grant system for colleges um and then this the Sheffield scientific school uh is a, is a key one I actually pulled up my database here because I' stumbled on this not too long ago uh these are people who have basically uh been the heads of this Sheffield scientific school okay uh Daniel click Gilman um, you got Harold Howe II. These people are all members in the Order of Skull and Bones. Uh, Joseph Richardson Dilworth, William Bundy, um, is William Cowles. Um, well, no, not him, but his grandfather. Okay, so he's so so that not him particular, but his family was one uh, uh, was the Order Skull and Bones. William Draper the third, who is. Is it his dad? It's either him or his dad. That's uh, a member of the Order of Skull and Bones, um, and so way, I don't know how many. I name was it to six or seven uh, people that have run the Sheffield Scientific School out of um, out of Yale have been have been members of the Order of Skull and Bones, <clears throat> and then there's other there's some other important people, but I mean they're they're you know their hands are all over that, and so basically running uh, science. Uh, the science department um and um then you also have him basically um suffusing um um uh, hegelianism hegelian philosophy into the curriculum early on through people like g stanley hall and then eventually you have uh you know uh, sort of his his um his protege which would have been uh, john dewey and then john dewey kind of passes the ball to uh, john b watson and Um, um, and then you also have the, uh, importation of the stimulus response method of psychological conditioning as a component, uh, integral, uh, to, to any uh, pedagogical training. Like when I, like I I mentioned, I was doing the high school practicum and, um, uh, I remember I had to take educational psychology. And I just remember going, well, like, I'm teaching literature. Like, why do I need to know, like, you know, the neurotransmitters and, you know, the, you know, cognitive behavioral uh, reflexes. And it's like, I'm teaching my content. Like, I'm not, like, figuring out how to manipulate this kid's brain into doing what I want, right? Like, if I do, if I, if I master my content and my art, then, you know what I mean, uh, this should bridge the gap. Uh, and then, you know, when I learned, you know, the, how how instrumental, how, how key the whole stimulus response method was, like, oh, well, that makes sense. Now, I, I get it now. So so all of that, right? Uh, all of those have been, have basically shaped uh, modern academia and made it what it is today. Um, there's, there's other important, there's other uh, interesting connections between the order and some of the some of the people who designed the earlier models of brain-computer interfaces and other neural neural implants. uh That's not really it doesn't really have anything to do with the education system, so I won't go down that rabbit hole. But maybe next time uh, we can talk about uh, like uh, Jose Manuel Rodriguez Delgado, the guy that wrote Physical Control of the Mind. He was surrounded yeah.
0: by bones. Yeah, <laughs> he was at Yale, and and you mentioned B.F. Skinner earlier, who I believe was out of Harvard. So that kind of connects him into the fray right i i couldn't
1: yeah he was funded by by um so when he was at when he was uh so the technology of teaching is a book there where he writes about his philosophies and methods for program instruction through his teaching machines um it's not just an an explication of right his his, is again his theories and methodologies it's also like showcases like some of the early models some of the analog models that have like gears and wheels and like and some of the other early electronic models before the evolving of the modern digital versions. Um, and he in the in the beginning of that, the acknowledgments section, he thanks um the head of the, the dean of graduate uh, studies there, uh, who was Bonesman from the Bundy, McGeorge Bundy, McGeorge oh, wow. Bundy. Okay, so he was financed by
0: McGeorge Bundy.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow, I didn't realize it was that direct. I actually uh, on a, show, a different show I do with my friend Mike Wan, we spent a, an episode talking about B.F. Skinner just as a sort of psychological examination of a person. I mean, you know, his work kind of speaks to the type of mind that would, you know, be in that realm. But as like a clinical thinking scientist, like it really seemed like he was passionless. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't want to judge anybody, but he, he definitely personifies like that, uh, you know, mad scientist or like cold scientist that you see portrayed in like, uh, you know, the film, uh, Dr. Strangelove, is it by, uh, Kubrick, right? So yeah, it, it feels like maybe he was aware of, of that Kubrick, but, uh, Damn, John, this has been a, a fantastic episode. We went far longer than we were scheduled to. I'd love to have you back on, uh, very soon if you, you can. And, um, yeah, and obviously go into a little bit more of the skull and bone stuff as well, if we can, but, uh, anything that you'd like to leave the audience with, obviously you have a website that folks can go to. They can pick up your book, school world order, uh, through Trine day. Uh, it's, most likely available on Amazon too, I'd imagine. Uh, but Trine Day is good. I've picked up books from Trine Day and it's, they've delivered it uh, quicker than Amazon in some cases. So I definitely encourage people to go directly to Trine Day. Uh, but maybe they can get it from your site as well. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, my, my site links uh, to, to Trine Day. So if cool. you go through there to get it, Um, you know, that's where you'll go. So it's SchoolWorldOrder.info. And uh, you know if, if if we're sold out, at trying to you can maybe grab it at Amazon. Um, you yeah, know, it all depends on where we're at in the distribution cycle. Um, and that website has uh, a collection of all the articles that I've written before and after uh, I published the book. So I've written, written quite a few articles uh, post COVID on sort of. Uh, Analyzing how, you know, lockdowns have basically um, hit the accelerator on a lot of stuff I talked about in the book. I also did a series on uh, the the unions, the teachers unions and how, uh, unfortunately, uh, they're tied into something called Education International, which is a global union that has multiple ties to the World Economic Forum and the entire Fourth Industrial Revolution agenda. Uh, and, uh, most of these, most of the stuff I do now is for Unlimited Hangout, which is Whitney Webb's publication, um, who also is now trying to offer just recently published her, uh, book on Epstein or two volume series. Um, so you, so you can go there to catch online articles, uh, you can, you know, you can keep up with me on Unlimited Hangout. I, uh, I, I wish I had published more this year, this year, uh, this year got hard to, to juggle everything. Uh, but otherwise, I've got links to my social media uh, on there as well. Big Twitter, Telegram. Uh, I try to make some videos here and there. But you know, again, hands kind of kind of tied as of late. But I'm hoping next year I'm going to be able to do some of this more regularly. If you'd like to, uh, you know, support my research, uh, I I build a database, a Brady database um, that sort of lays out of you know a 3D uh, map of everything I've talked about in here with links and notes. And I upload, you know, again, Charlotte gave me Uh when I was over there. One of the things I did was I um cleaned out the barn and in the barn. uh There was 13 cabinets, with 34 shelves, filing cabinets, everything that she took from the department and all, all sorts of stuff. It was mainly education documents, stuff that she took out of the department, stuff that people leaked to her from the department, stuff that she Gathered on her own, uh, and so stuff like that includes Project Best and these address books. Like that. I mean, uh, she had scanned them; her and her son scanned them uh, back in the day. But I, I've got these on my
0: on my website on the
1: on the database. So if we uh, take a look at the uh, the facsimile, Um Chris Chris actually republished right in, in his own printed the lists and all their affiliations. But that's just uh, you know one way. You can, I uh, i send you an email every week. I, I update it every week. Uh, but those are the ways you can keep in touch and,
2: uh, and
1: uh, maybe support me a little bit. Uh, you know, if you just want to pick my brain or, you know, fear any uh, thoughts or you got any uh, anything you think I'd be interested in as far as something I might want to research, you know, uh, I always respond. I'm always happy to respond. I mean, sometimes I take a little bit longer than I want to, but I always respond. So. Uh, you know, if you, like I said, if you just want to connect that, you can go to my website, send me an email or shoot me a DM on Twitter or something like that.
0: Right on. Well, let me tell the folks, if you go to SchoolWorld.info, it's as easy as, I mean, what, two minutes that was while you were explaining, <laughs> I signed up. So it's very simple. Uh, folks, please go support John and, uh, and get him off of the, the, the community college, uh, you know, get out of there, John. We need your mind in the, in the research lab, you know, at the desk, writing more books, writing more articles. Uh, I hope I can do anything I can to help you with that, uh, as far as getting on podcasts and whatnot. But, uh, John, this has been really fun for everyone listening. Thank you for being here. Go to schoolworldorder.info. And check out John's work. And until next time, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. A three-hour big episode ending 2022 strong. I hope everybody out there has had a great year. I hope you found my show this year and it's served you well. Really just... uh, hit our prime this year, I think. I mean, we've really uh, hit our stride, so to speak. So I'm excited for what's to come. We're coming on our third year of podcasting. It feels like I'm still in the second year, but no, it's the third year of this podcast. And uh, it's really amazing to have reached as many people as we have Please leave us a five-star rating and review. Uh, Let us know how the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast has treated you in 2022. And of course, go and support us on Patreon. Sign up for the $5 tier. I know there's a bunch of tiers. The $5 tier will get you everything you need. Uh, If you want access to a bunch of awesome books that I'm going to be uploading to the Patreon, a bunch of PDFs, well, you could join the book club for all those in the book club. Thank you for being there. And uh, you're going to get some PDFs for Christmas. So uh, maybe you're crazy and you like printing them out like me. Uh, I just did that today. Got a printer, the cheapest one they had, and set it up. And now I'm printing out PDFs. So, more books for the library, more information, more knowledge. And I'm putting a lot of that on the Substack. So, you could support on Substack, you could support on Patreon, you can support on Rockfin. The Patreon has dipped below 100 again. I don't know, maybe you're listening and you thought your payment went through and it didn't. Go double check if you think you're a part of the Patreon. But we had 100, now we're below a hundred so whoever signs up and makes it to the 100th patron you will receive a reward you of course have to return my message the last 100th patron never returned my message so i wasn't able to send them anything but please sign up for the patreon if you are the 100th patron i will send you a special gift Uh, of course if you want to get someone you love a gift this year you can go to our merch store if you know they listen to the show or if you know they smoke weed uh, or really smoke anything get them a hit kit hitkit.us you can go to their website you can go to their instagram and check out the hit kits it's a really cool neat device very handy comes in handy you just put your joints inside of it you get your lighter in a compartment right next to it and some of the hit kits even have it so that the lighter's tucked away and you don't even have to take the lighter out. You just light it up right there in the hit kit. So check that out. Shout out to Garrett. He supports the show. He is a listener of the show, and he is the sole operator of hit So no big corporations, just a small independent business just like this podcast is a small independent business so if you could help out with a patreon subscription a substack subscription a ko-fi subscription i mean there's so many ways to support the show the best way to do it is patreon in my opinion but if you like video you can also go on rockfin rockfin's another really great way to support the show and I'm very grateful to everybody who watches the show on Rockfin although I don't know if they get this uh outro because I don't put the outros in the video so unless they're going and and listening to to both then uh maybe they'll never hear this thank you but if you do listen to both I appreciate you and you're not crazy I do the same thing matter of fact none of you are crazy our families might think we're crazy but uh, none of you are Uh, some of you send crazy messages but I know deep down inside you're not crazy and uh, maybe you just need to chill out maybe you need to take a breath maybe you need to look at your life and say what am I doing that I can change how can I improve we all have ways that we can improve it's 2022 to an end so the big cliche is new year's resolutions and all that but uh i've never been one for that kind of thing i think the important the important aspect of that new year's resolution is the change and there's no need to limit it to one moment of the year right we'll get that out of here but if that's what it takes to motivate you then go for it but just make sure you have a february resolution a march resolution an april resolution and so on and so forth because you got to keep up with it you know it's not just going to be january where you turn your life around if, if that's what needs to happen or even if it's a small change start now so that's all we've got this has already been a very long episode The holidays are coming up i celebrate christmas Uh, my family celebrates christmas but it's hanukkah right now so happy hanukkah to everybody out there celebrating uh, hanukkah and happy holidays to everyone no matter what holiday you celebrate there's a bunch of uh, holidays that occur around this time of year no matter what part of the sphere you find yourself in and have no fear. It could be a plate, but I I don't think that would be all that much more great. Uh, Tried to rhyme, but anyways, thank you to everyone listening. If you're like me and you celebrate Christmas, have a Merry Christmas. I don't know if we'll be putting out an episode this weekend, possibly. We'll have a bonus episode coming out. But if you don't hear from me until then, have a Merry Christmas. And of course, you know, send us a one-time donation. If you want to give me or the show a, a gift, you can think of it as giving me a gift or you can think of it as giving a gift to the show because when you donate to the show it helps me pay for all of the things that go into paying for a highly produced podcast like this so thank you so much to everyone out there and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now
3: water. yeah i gotta know the truth don't you hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out depression anxiety it's no measure for help to be well adjusted to a sick society you don't even know how powerful you are Meet the ones who gonna expose the whole facade broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface they want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals Dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war Of the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes Of a copy of a human body DNA fractal The universe within me Epiphanies of science Is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters No, The power of the mantra Repeating mad lies Till it has an effect on you. Repetitive messaging And big pharma injections Tricking the population With holographic projections We see through it And the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with a squad Keep spitting that truth like Mark on the pod I gotta know the truth, don't you hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety It's no measure for help. to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. It's all a set up.